previously on Hawthorne's Crusade. Just kidding. This episode is an in-depth discussion of the events, operations, themes, secrets, and anything else that comes about Negative Modifier's second Delta Green campaign, Hawthorne's Crusade. Because of this, we would recommend that you listen to the entire campaign in its entirety before listening to this episode. But, if you don't mind spoilers or potentially feeling a little confused, feel free to keep listening. In this episode of Negative Modifier, we'll be playing the game Delta Green. Delta Green by design tackles various mature themes that may be uncomfortable or triggering for listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, it's Charlie, Negative Modifier's Game Master. First off, thank you for giving us a listen. As always, expect something horrible to happen to the players. If you're a fan, support us by leaving a review on iTunes. If you hate the show, consider doing it anyway and enjoying the fact that you've inflicted us on someone else. For the most up-to-date news on the podcast, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And with that... Hello and welcome to our deep dive for Hawthorne's Crusade. If this is your first episode of the Negative Modifier podcast, please don't make it this one unless you want a ton of spoilers. We have completed our recent Delta Green campaign, Hawthorne's Crusade. It's long. It took us over a year to record the entire thing start to finish. We hope you enjoyed it. If you made it this far, we'd like to think you did. But yeah, so spoiler warning in effect for both J-Cell a little bit and obviously Hawthorne's Crusade that's our focus. We're going to get into the lore, the references, the things you may have missed, the things the players missed as part of this whole kind of crazy ride we found ourselves on. This is not to be a critique of what happened, what happened, happened. I love the story we managed to make out of that. I would change nothing about it. This is more just to kind of fill in maybe those questions you have and give you a little bit of a taste of the Delta Green lore. As much as I love Delta Green, it is not the best at feeding you the lore of its game by design, admittedly. Like the, the running joke is, the best people to play Delta Green was people that know nothing about the Cthulhu mythos, and that still holds true to me to a certain extent. But yes, yeah, so obviously you've heard my voice a bunch. I'm Charlie, a.k.a. our handler through this. I've been a bunch of people. Let's run through the crafts real quick. Everyone introduce yourself for using your real names. I guess I'll go first here. My name is Alex. Also, I am Agent Foxtrot slash Javier. Also, John, although rarely do you actually hear me use Javier, but it was part of the character mystique of my background as a CIA guy to not really use his own name. So uh, yeah, that is me. I played Javier Cortez. I'm Dylan. I was playing Florence, also known as Dr. Alexander Nephilim. Not too much of a secret, but she tried to keep it a secret. It didn't last long. Hi, my name's Chad. I played both Father Faustus as well as Agent Firestarter, both two characters that I really wanted to explore in terms of my role-playing capabilities that just grew to be near and dear to my heart. I have two opposites the Delta Green spectrum in some ways, too, as far as characters go. Um, I mean, yeah, it's especially because it was like my first run of Delta Green, I guess, playing professionally or not professionally, but it's like sitting down and actually playing it. I really wanted to explore like, what can Delta Green age? And I'm really kind of excited to see like what kind of stuff I can kind of dip into when it comes to further Delta games. Or even just like any kind of games with this group. This group has been absolutely just a natural, fun, cohesive group to play in. Like, I cannot say how much I appreciated this entire year playing with you guys. Oh, yeah, agreed. I have been one of the, the best role-playing groups I've been a part of. I've enjoyed every operation and session we've done together. Been a pleasure playing with you guys. 
I will agree on that. This, you guys are actually my first group that I actually did a full campaign with. I've never actually, well, because Charlie actually brought me on board originally. I've never really played a lot of tabletop, although I was always interested in doing it. And I've heard horror stories of like some groups that don't necessarily go so well. All to be true from playing with me. They're all true. I mean, I, I've been I'm very lucky. I got, you know, you guys as my group and it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Alex was partially brought in because way the hell back when we did a podcast together that was video game related. So he was kind of of the the new cast, if you will, because we had the original cast for JSL and we have this cast for Hawthorne's Crusade. He's not actually one of the other three that had kind of a fair amount of podcasting experience and kind of it's useful to have another person that kind of understands the you got to keep things going aspect of that because I can only edit out so much dead air type of stuff, but. That's enough about that. We are recording this a week after we finished recording Hawthorne's Crusade. Probably several months will pass before this goes up and you get to hear it. We'll also do, if you've not been tuning in for them, we have a variety of kind of little Q&A sessions we did after each arc concluded on Twitch. You can find the archive on YouTube. And if you're not subscribed to the Twitch, go do that. And you will, I think I keep doing those. I had a lot of fun doing them. People seem to tune in and have fun with them. And it kind of gave us a nice little refresher of where things were at, I think, for later down the road. So, yeah, look forward to more of those in the future. We won't do that for every game we get up to, but definitely these kind of longer-form campaigns we have planned in the near future. So, Hawthorne's Crusade. Do you guys want me to answer the question of what was the big mythos thing behind this or explain the name, the thing I have teased this entire time in every single one of our little Q&A sessions? So I have to ask, because you've been teasing the name thing for a while, and you said you'll figure it out after the campaign's over. The campaign's over, and I still have no fucking idea what the name references. That's fair. I'm not sure if you can figure it out, figure it out, but like it would make a little more sense. If you, I'm not sure you can figure it out till afterwards. So Hawthorne's Crusade. The Crusade part is pretty obvious. The Hawthorne part is a reference to... It's a double reference, actually. So there is a, I think it's a psychological theory called the Hawthorne effect. And the Hawthorne effect basically boils down to people act differently when they're under surveillance, whether or not they actually are under surveillance. And you can use the illusion of surveillance to influence and change people's behavior. The double meaning is the fact that that theory got completely debunked relatively quickly after it made its way into kind of pop culture. Other ideas out there, the observer effect, which is a much realer thing, which is basically the idea that in physics, by observing something, you actually inherently change its, for lack of a phrase, its nature. Like you cannot observe something correctly. It always, the act of observing something changes what you're observing because you're observing it. You have to measure it in some form, and that adds a minor aspect to the equation of observation. Hawthorne's effect was kind of the psychological approach to that where it started off initially actually in, I think it was manufacturing where the whole idea was that you could trick employees into working better by making them think like they were being constantly monitored and surveilled during their workday. Turns out it doesn't work as many people kind of subconsciously know. You eventually learn kind of if cameras are actually on or even if they work or if people are actually watching, which... Do you get how that's maybe been the theme the entire campaign now that I've spelled it out some? Yeah. That, that makes, makes a lot of sense. sense. Yeah, that 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 is. 
I was for whatever reason I could only think of Nathaniel Hawthorne, and it's like this does not nothing about this campaign feels like the Scarlet Letter. So like I gotta keep thinking harder. <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of that in there too, actually. If you kind of want to look at it from a certain angle. I mean, I guess we visited like what's it called the Thirteen Colonies or something, but even then, <laughs> I mean, that was there. There's a. That's maybe where the crusady aspects of it come, because I do enjoy the Scarlet Letter from a, again, it kind of ties into this idea of mass mob rules, like our dear antagonist, our man behind the screen, this is where kind of the double definition of Hawthorne's crusade, of the, the Hawthorne part of it comes in, is he's wrong. Like, he is convinced he's doing the right thing, and the sheeple are wrong, if you will. Like, it's, and the kind of, getting to the stuff kind of you guys missed, if you'd run his credentials that you found, you could have found out a lot more about him, and basically he is a whole whack job of the NSA should control the world, like, better people through better surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he is the epitome of if we just kept everyone from doing things wrong via the magical powers of observation and intrusive surveillance, then no one would do anything wrong ever again. And Delta Green will have to exist because Delta Green's wrong. They don't get it. They're just not using this the correct way. So this dude was someone who just absolutely loved the whole Patriot Act thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. So and I guess kind of building off of that. So one of the kind of, if, if you dig into the handler's guide for this, there are aspects where I think it's a paragraph that basically says like in a tongue in cheek way, uh, the, the politics of the, of our cream publishing are occasionally confusing. If you don't get kind of how they lean on a bunch of this stuff, where it calls the Patriot Act, the greatest thing to happen to Delta green and the history of Delta green which from a mechanical and what the job what the job of Delta Green is perspective, yeah, absolutely true. The ability for federal agents to just kind of show up and do federal agent things, a lot of questions, great for hunting the unnatural. But as we've all now learned, Delta Green is secretly terrible and never the solution, except when it very specifically is. And even in that case, Vicky happened. Like, it, it's never the solution you want it to be. It's never the good solution, if you will, kind of thing. It always comes with asterisks and complications. And are we, is what we're doing actually right? Like, would the situation just resolve itself over time? Maybe, maybe not. Like, yeah, it raises more questions than answers. There's absolutely so been so many times where I've just wondered, like, is there a less violent and invasive method for us to do this? The answer was in a couple places. Sure, maybe. But also, in the moment, are you thinking of that? Who knows type of thing. You you guys did a fantastic job of playing people. And if there's one thing about people that Delta Green does a great job of kind of bringing to the role play surface is that they are flawed, messed up, and do not always make the best decisions in the moment type of thing. And as much as Delta Green is a game about investigation and Eldritch Horror, it's really a game about the spiral and people and kind of how doing the right thing and being the hero is not a good way to live and kind of like it's... You're not always the hero. You might be the hero from your perspective in that moment, but you did some bad stuff. And do the ends justify the means? And as someone who runs this game, I don't have the answers to that. Like, we could go back with a fine-tooth comb and kind of nitpick every decision made in this campaign. And that's why we start this off with the decisions that were made of the decisions that were made. This is the story we told. And yeah, going back, you could maybe change some stuff, but also who knows what the ramifications down the road might have been type of thing. Like, yeah. So I guess to jump over to the other kind of question I posited at the start of this, let's talk about the Eldritch horror behind this. Obviously, we had kind of multiple small Eldritch horror things throughout the campaign, but our 
big mythos thing driving all of this. The glowing lights at the bottom of the Orbita basement levels was Yogg-Sothoth, my favorite of the Cthulhu mythos things. Partially because he's one of the most powerful, but also because he has no need or interest in cultists, but keeps getting cultists, and because he is so unbelievably alien, doesn't really get how he's supposed to interact with the cultists. Like, they kind of just become gateways to the real world, which he finds interesting as a being from outside of time, but at the same time, like, he's not even, like, human enough to have the thought of, do I even want cultists? Like, he is, until you get to, like, Azathoth, one of the most alien things in the entire Mythos universe, because the description of him is quite literally a cloud of blinking lights, teeth, and eyes, and occasionally tentacles. You all may be more familiar with the Hellboy representation of him, which is when he kind of comes through and he's all tentacles. That's also Yogg-Sothoth. He's also from the Dunwich Horror, where he has a completely normal human kid and a kid that's a 20-foot-tall, massive teeth, eyes, and tentacles. The, the thing's pretty inconsistent. He's also kind of dad to a bunch of the nightmare stuff that happens throughout the Cthulhu mythos, but also can't really be a dad because he's not, he's not, he doesn't love stuff almost by accident is the way of thinking. Like kind of his existence is stuff moving forward. He's the keeper of gates. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent, but also doesn't really have a good idea of what to do with that information. He has no goals. He has no machinations except existing outside of time and being the thing that most mortals learn magic from, ironically, but not intentionally by like freak accident. All of his gifts are definitely curses and yeah so if you want to kind of get into the hawthorne's crusade aspects of it there's a certain point in the crusade where you may have noticed that the motivation started to get weirder where it almost seemed to be about bleeding into the world and getting something done that's kind of designed to be the point where it's like okay is gatekeeper is is william even remotely actually the thing turning the screws at this point. Like, is he actually even the thing driving this? He thinks he is. He thinks he gets what's going on, but as you all learned at the end of our final Operation Malin, Milan, I think technically, he's really just an anchor that Yogg-Sothoth is using to hold himself into our dimension from outside of time. Like, he doesn't really care or have any idea of who he's interacting with, he's just using him as kind of a feed with which to interact with the mortal world, if that makes any sense. I think that's funny in the, with just kind of the relationship of gosh, it's Lovecraftian. There we go. Jeez Louise, I can't believe I almost forgot the name. Love, Lovecraftian mythos and stuff, how they, they just kind of, humanity is so ins insignificant in regards to just the sheer horror and the sublime horror and the sheer power of like these creatures that just exist and just doing shit but like their existence for whatever reason is just bleeding into our world and just causing chaos and stuff like the idea of delta green just being this weirdly futile but hyper intense means of just obeying that armageddon has always been so like interesting for me to think about just because it's like really like what's the point but like you still gotta do this yeah it's it's kind of the if not us, then who topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What what kind of, like, did you have 
uh, means of like when you were kind of making or when you were kind of crafting the story, were you kind of basing everything around Yogg-Sothoth or did you have like a seed of an idea and then Sothoth just kind of came to you? So it's it's twofold, I guess. Like it's one of those ones where when I write our kind of Delta Green campaigns, I always have two work in canon. I basically, it started off, I want to do a surveillance story. I want to kind of do a story that the idea of it is this whole idea of the, the Hawthorne, it's the Hawthorne effect. Like the whole idea of if the players think they are constantly being watched through the entirety of the campaign at various intervals, or various levels, like what does that look like? And Delta Green is a game about kind of covert secrets, not being on camera. So if you kind of twisted that on its head and give them a long running set of stories where you have kind of eyes, both metaphorically and literally in some cases, on them, the entire run type of thing, the thing that they're supposed to be doing, what does that look like? And you kind of start digging into that. You're, I've roughed out the campaign from that, and it's like, okay, what mythos thing goes along with that? It's like, oh, like, there's a couple ones. It's like, let's go with the obvious one of Yogg-Sothoth, who is this uh, omnipotent but doesn't really care creature. It could not care less about any of the like, it's the not to be mean, but it could not have cared less about any of the campaign. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, it's there, but also it's in a billion other places and outside of time and in a billion other dimensions simultaneously, just being a repository for all knowledge ever. And also like, it views time as a plane or maybe from outside of time. So this is just a point where it's in, in that kind of plane of existence where it's like, oh, I'm in this point in the world. Cool. I might also be in a totally different way infecting the world over here as well and over there and whichever one of these works, that's cool, but also I'm so everything and nothing simultaneously, I could simultaneously be working against myself and not realize it because I don't get humans by that measure. And once I kind of landed on Yogg-Sothoth being the mythos thing behind all of this, it kind of became like, okay, what is surveillance look like through the lens of Yogg-Sothoth? It's like, okay, so literally his whole thing is eyes, but also his whole thing is, he knows everything. He sees everything because he just kind of does. What is that manifest as? Because just having you guys be tracked around constantly by cameras everywhere, that's boring. So it becomes the graffiti, the tentacles that are as much kind of Yogg-Sothoth infecting and corrupting modern technology, but also so kind of, one of the details I threw out there kind of hammered home that also then became a trap because it was feeding you the song or the kind of the, the, the rhythm that causes your organs to shut down that is part of Florence's whole background. That's also Yogg-Sothoth, like the idea of him basically being a mass of coiling modern tentacles, a.k.a. cables that just have throughout it blinking random lights. Like that's a data center, but that's also Yogg-Sothoth at that point. Kind of once I realized that whole connection and kind of how you thought about it that way, just the rest of it fell into place. And if you look at kind of the campaign as it progresses, it starts off with maybe something's watching you, maybe something's pulling the strings and ends with you guys in a tech company with a basement full of evil servers that was going to put a bunch of eyes in space around Earth. Like, it's it's a tad more blatant by the end, and it's kind of like, yeah, no, it gets, what would Yogg-Sothoth want? More eyes everywhere, I guess? But also, he already sees everything, but his earthly kind of manifestation doesn't necessarily know that because William thinks of him as kind of a god that's giving him power and abilities. Like, I I, I don't have an answer to this. I'm not sure William knows that by the end of his existence, he's just 
a dead body and several organs kept alive by essentially an evil server rack. I'm not sure William is self-aware enough at that point in time to understand that he is so not human anymore. He is, by all measures, dead and beyond dead and decaying, but still, he lives? Does that kind of answer the question, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, that's. I would have never put that together. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it, it requires kind of some crazy mythos stuff. Like, it's the... There's a couple points, I think, where if you're kind of looking for what the mythos thing was, you could guess at it. Like, and it's also one of those ones where I know what the mythos thing is, so it's me sitting there being like, it's so obvious, but also I'm like, who else is going to make this dumb connection? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I, A couple people I know have guessed that it's Yogg-Sothoth correctly. They have not figured out the Hawthorne's Crusade part of it, so it's been a fun one. Okay, so, yeah, it's... I think of the fact that, like, in Nux, when you're guys, when you, when you're in, Ver- when you're, when you're in Southern Vermont, and, like, the whole thing of, like, yeah, there's just, like, thousands of flying eyes around. That's Yogg-Sothoth in a horrible drone technological form in my mind at that point. Or at least it's kind of evocative of this idea of swirling eyes above you that there's not much you can do about them. They really can't do much to you, but they're watching. So I'm curious, what was the super, super bad secret ending that we all had to hit? A certain thing for it to happen. Oh, you got it. Yeah, we we, we got right. it. It was it was not, it was Nyra Lethrotep showing up and dragging Florence to the end of time. Which I guess like minor spoilers for next season of Delta Green. But uh, next season is the Nyra Lethrotep season. There are hints in J Cell that this season was going to be a Yogg-Sothoth season. There are hints in both J Cell and the Crusade, obviously, that Nyra Lethrotep's coming, and our, our next season's a Nyra Lethrotep story, which means it's. One of the few very human Lovecraftian gods. Like, he is he is one of the few things that has shown up in both of our Delta Green seasons, and he's finally taken center stage. And this was so... We'll talk about this in much more detail after we finish our third season of Delta Green, but... So, if Dylan has the unique situation where his character exists in the F-Cell that came before Negative Modifier. That's how me and Dylan met. We actually met through, I guess, recording for a different... Delta Green podcast it didn't seem to come to fruition, but we had cool characters I wanted to keep going. And when it came time to look for people for the second season of Negative Modifier, does Delta Green? Dylan was an obvious choice in my mind. So kind of it's the hey, do you want to play out the final story of this character? And as alluded to in our story for Hawthorne's Crusade, Fiddlesticks, aka now Agent Tranche, has a deal going on. I think I explicitly said that as part of our super bad ending where the deal is pretty simple. It was Nyra Lethrotep keeps F-Cell or the original, the, those members of F-Cell safe. So Dylan did not know this, but except for very specific things, he had plot armor this entire season. The plot armor uh, would end with Nyra Lethrotep showing up and grabbing him, but. I did not know that at all. And I was terrified of dying the entire season. Yep. I'm you just glad. Be- or sorry, go ahead. You could still go insane and rituals could kill you, but yeah, it basically like the entire, every time you almost got close to death from human means, for lack of a better phrase, I'm like, is this the point where I tell Dylan that Nyarlathrop shows up and just grabs Florence and goes, come with me? It was, that was fun. I like that it sets up, you know, the final season. Also, I, I am just extremely satisfied that Florence's like last moments before she's left alone at the end of time is realizing that she annoyed Naira Lethertep by just staying alive for so yeah. long. He wanted you off the board. 
so satisfying. She needs her off the board for reasons that will become clear, and she is finally off the board. I honestly thought that she was going to die very early on in the campaign. Oh, I was trying to. Yeah, because she is very squishy. Yeah. yeah. That was not me pulling punches. It was more the fact that every single time she got close to death, it was me being like, okay, how do I tell Dylan's character is going to come back in four operations at the very end of this? Two operations at the very end of it. There are certain points where I'm like, how do I explain this without ex- giving away that, like, <laughs> yo, the last thing we're going to do as part of this campaign is Florence comes back at the end of the world. And so that got teed off by the by the monolith, which let's start taking this arc by arc, I guess. So we start off with NIMBY, which is twofold. First off, it's getting to our characters, but also from a podcast perspective. I have to assume everyone's never never listened to a Delta Green podcast before. You have to have a entry point and say, hey, here's Delta Green, here's what this is kind of vaguely about. And that's when the infamous Vicky thing happens, which I will stand to this day, I did not know Vicky was going to die in that operation. I guessed that she might, but I was pretty sure she was going to live, but also she didn't. And that set up a whole bunch of other events that kind of starts the ticking doom clock in the background of ways for the whole shadow organization to mess with you because you now have this very grounding touchstone of remember when you kill the housewife that I can just go back to over and over and over again when I needed to have them basically reach out and poke at you guys being like, we know what you did, you monsters. Yeah, that being our first operation was really great because that that's like the very end there was when I realized that like this group was really good at role playing too because it wasn't like, oh, yeah, we did it. We did it. We were all like, you know, kind of fucked up over what we had just done, you know? Why did we do this? What is wrong with us? And it was a really good, like, thinking from, like, a, a character's perspective. We were all new to each other at that point. So it was like, it was just straight down to business. This is what we are and this is what we do. It was real good. I think I got to commend Alex for this th- thing, too. We're just playing the an incredibly hard character to toe the line of where like you have to kind of like Foxtrot, but like reminding us over and over again that like, this is what adapted to violence means. This is the kind of human monster that Foxtrot is from start to finish type of thing. Like he is capable of the worst things. Like I unbelievably impressed with how you played Foxtrot the entire time. Alex. Like, he's, Cause like low charisma character, but he's likable. He's interesting, but like, you also fucking hate him in the best way possible. Yeah, I, I, so I actually, I, it was, I was trying something different because you've played with me before as far as like my personality and like all that. So I try not to let too much of me show up in my character because I have a very bad habit of, how can I put it? I have a very bad habit of like inserting my personality or like things that I would think would be quirky or like fun, like doing a bunch of jokes or puns and, being super sarcastic as a character like it's it's a bad habit that i i really tried to break with this character and i i did let it in a little bit when it was like appropriate but for the most part i tried to keep him like fairly like you know civil like he did always kind of keep folks at an arm's length because you know he was not charismatic he was not a social being he was I mean, the dude lived alone. He had a dog. Like That's all he had. And even then, his dog hated him at the end. Like, or not hated him, but, you know, was not bonded with him, if you yeah, will. Yeah, I very much enjoyed kind of the story of Foxtrot where it's, star- like, it's the, despite the fact that, like, 
of our characters, he kind of goes on the most self-improvement journey in some ways through the entire thing. He never stops being a monster. Like, he is, like, his ending is tragic because he kind of finally bonds with people, but also the road to there is both metaphorically and literally paved with bodies type of thing. Like, it's a fascinating character arc to kind of step your way through. And I think Nimby's a fun introduction to, like, yeah, we have this character, he's very... He's very functional. He's very kind of good at what he does, and this is what he does. And what he does is, depending on kind of your moral perspective, bad to not great at best. Yeah, I try to take the approach of, like, a functioning alcoholic, but instead of being an alcoholic, he's just like a monster. And so he's a functioning monster. Like, he'll do the socializing and the talking to people when he has to, but for the most part, like, he's not, like, I mean, I can't even say he's not a bad person, but he's also not a good person, you know? Like, yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of the approach I started with him. And so it kind of, I, I will say that his character did definitely grow and bond more with this team because it was like a repeated thing. But like, I think the ending being the way it was where like, obviously, you know, Florence falls and it was fitting that it was my character who, you know, as he created these bonds and was now like, getting along with his team and like was connected i think it's kind of fitting that like reality reminds him of kind of what kind of who the monster or what kind of you know or what his life actually is because he failed and he's gonna i guess to kind of i guess to kind of sit on that he's gonna like feel like he failed still because he feels responsible the fact that he at the you know crucial moment failed and let florence falter her death so yeah, yeah it's Makes me really I, sad. Huh? I said that makes me really sad. It's, it's yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's yeah. a Delta Ring campaign. You should not feel good at the end of it. You should feel kind of maybe not morally compromised, but like it's heavy. It's by it's heavy by design. I put a content warning at the start of each episode because this is a dark podcast, not in some edge lordy way, but because we are teasing with very human emotions. I think, and yeah, I think kind of the arc of foxtrot through everything is this for a character that no one can relate to i think because we're not cia wet workers he has a very relatable story of trying to find friends and making bonds and stuff and then you're still foxtrot though yeah i mean hell he couldn't even bond with his neighbor like yeah they were always known as the neighbor they were like a no-name base like he didn't even know their name like yeah and it's just kind of it's also kind of a little bit Interesting, too, because one of, like, Foxtrot, I don't know if you had noticed it, one of Foxtrot's favorite, like, things to do was people watch. Like, he'd kind of just go to, like, a tea, you know, grab some tea somewhere, local coffee place, whatever, and he just, he just, like, watching, I guess, it's kind of like watching a a TV show because he's watching humans and people interact, but for him, it's just like a TV show. It's not reality to him because that's not what his life is. So he can watch it and be an observer in that environment. So he'll watch people go about their lives and have bonds and families and experiences. But for him, it's very much like watching a TV show. You hear about it, you see it, but you don't live it. So yeah, the disconnect's very real. Yeah. Yeah. And so I try to keep that disconnect very real. And so those habits stay consistent. I like to think that, you know, there was kind of almost a yearning for it, but that's just not who he is in the end. Yeah, no, I think I have NIMBY does a very good job of kind of introducing the whole idea of a functional human, but also like not 100% human in some ways. Like, yeah, it's it gives you this kind of cool taste of the character where it's like, 
the solution is obviously murder and not some like crazy murder hobo way, but in a like that's the fastest way from point A to point B type of situation, or that's how you contain the situation completely. It's like no, no, no loose ends. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I will say, I know one of the this is one of the moments that we talked about before that was really interesting that I liked was there was that moment before I think was it Vicky right? Yeah, yeah. Before we killed her, like there was a moment where he like Joe showed genuine concern, like hey. If we do this, this is like, this is finite. This is it. There's yeah. no turning back. There's no redoing. You know, like if we kill this person, that's it. And like, you want to be in the room when this happens because this will follow you. My character is a monster. He's used to this. Oh, and then it literally followed you for the rest of the campaign. Like anytime I wanted to bring up like, hey, something's been watching you. It was always Vicky front and center because like, it's such a, from a story standpoint, this uniquely kind of, it's a moment where like, no matter if you, if you think this decision was right, it's still a tough decision kind of thing. It comes up over and over again, not just because I brought it up, because you all brought it up occasionally. It's like, is this going to be another Vicky situation? I don't know, kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I, I like that, like, for this team, like, it's very easy to like, just fall into the, uh, into like the, oh, well, you know, we just got to do what's got to get done. And this is it. Like, we always like, even though it's Delta Green, we try to approach it and we had our own moral compass, if you will. Yeah. Like there was always a like teetering if like I know Delta Green is what we have to do. This is a mission. This is a job. But like, does it have to be this way? Do we have to end up killing someone ultimately? Does someone, you know, do we have to go down this path? Do we have to kidnap someone? Like it's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. That ties back to kind of some of the our final big bags ideas of like, it doesn't have to be this way. His way is also wrong, but like, isn't that like this didn't have to go down this way type of thing? Again, I'm yeah. not sure what the right way for it to go down is, but yeah, like its decisions are made, consequences happen, and you move on for better or worse. Like that's how life works, unfortunately, and yeah. that's how the campaign works. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of poetic in a way because the longer we go on in the campaign, and the more people lose their sanity, and we we had discovered more and more about like what was going on the typical Delta green standard started to become easier for us all to stomach as it went on. You know, it was like, we'd show up to a situation. It's like, okay, we've got to torture this guy because we need to know what he knows. And, you know, there might be a little bit of reservation, but we still did it. Mm -hmm. So the moment that Florence actively started using her gun was mind blowing to me because it was like, okay, I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to really like dive deep into the Wendigo episode, but we just... will explain the Wendigo <laughs> on stream when we're talking about this live. I will, we will explain the Wendigo then. So tune in for that, I suppose. Yeah, that was a great episode. Because like with the Wendigo run, like I always think like, okay, this is a very straight laced, like the most human character that Delta Green has, where they still kind of have their like home compunctions and everything else like but all of a sudden, Florence was actively looking to train herself up in, like, uh, firearms and what, and, like, had no um, apprehension just using these firearms. It was like, okay, something has changed with this character and something has changed that deeply, or something has happened that it's deeply affected this character. And just kind of, like, touching back on, like, the Foxtrot sort of situation, Foxtrot of it all, I was absolutely kind of floored with the beautiful tragedy that was Foxtrot and Florence's relationship, just because not only are they survivors of a previous team, but it's the fact that, like, John doesn't have any kind of 
connections or anything else like that. Because John, or the way they understand John is John doesn't have any kind of connections because John understands the field of his work. But the fact that over the course of this campaign, he's let his guard down to accept Florence as someone who's close to him and to then just achieve that kind of failing with someone who he's let kind of be close was like this really weird, like, oh shit, this is happening and this is happening in this specific situation that was just so devastating. And I think also there's an interesting juxtaposition where you have Foxtrot, who's the active monster, and then you have Florence, who's the hidden monster through all of this, I guess, that we kind of, you get into eventually, and we'll talk about that as we kind of do our walk through our operations. But yeah, you have kind of this weird opposites attract where you have someone that's done very well at hiding the fact that they made an unbelievably messed up choice versus Foxtrot who makes messed up smaller choices constantly if that makes any sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I so just just a little bit about like thinking off of Foxtrot and Florence's relationship I had decided going into that final operation if there was a, a situation where Florence would have been able to save somebody in a situation where she would have been able to make a difference in sacrificing herself, she probably would have. Now, there aren't a lot of situations where Florence can actually make that difference because she's not very strong and she's not very good at shooting. But she wasn't bonded with anybody, but she had already lost, you know, Father Faustus in an operation. And you guys had gone through so much before, uh, to, so much to get up to that point that I don't think she was really willing to let somebody else die if she could help it so it's funny you mentioned that because going into that last mission i had actually considered also doing something similar to that that's why i asked for the dynamite towards or was it not the was dynamite the c4 because if i wasn't able to like get it to set off i was gonna basically be like i guess suicide bomb myself onto whatever that mainframe thing was but you guys could get out like that was i, I had made a conscious decision to do that until it was revealed that there was an opening on the top that we could use, if you will. But my character and like me, I had decided this is the way to go because it's at the end of the day. Yeah, it's this is a much bigger threat and like it's it's the mission. So he's got to do it. And, you know, he already felt guilty as hell with Faustus. And so this time it was like, no, this is it. It'll it'll be me. So. And I think it was interesting that our characters had kind of went towards the angle that like we were ready to sacrifice ourselves for people we barely knew in our, you know, on our team. We just, you know, we got to know each other a little bit, but like, you know, it wasn't really, I guess we weren't like, I don't know how to put it. We worked really well together. We've gone through a lot. It's one of those like forced by fire, if you will, kind of relationships with yeah, everyone. Because so. I mean, we, we hadn't even really learned. We learned each other's real names. Like months before the final operation so you know we still were all like we hadn't known each other for a very long time but it was like a bond forged in fire and i i had kind of decided that like you know florence had all of her bonds were gone and every time she bonded with the team she kept breaking the bond and i think that the mindset i had her in was at that point she just didn't want to be close to anyone because she had gotten so used to hurting the people that were close to her and that can't happen on an operation because you know drama on an operation is just death so yeah 
That's really interesting just because the way that I approached Firestarter or at least Firestarter's relationship with the characters was that he was going to prioritize the Delta Green bonds over his own personal bonds because this is what makes him feel the most not alive, but appreciated just because like with how he's kind of abandoning his civilian life for his Delta Green life, like he seeks the approval of John and he seeks the approval of Florence, especially so just because he views Florence as his kind of like introductory mentor. So because of that single moment of like his introduction into Delta Green is associated with Florence, it's like, okay, cool. Like he at least has some sort of history with that. It is just kind of interesting to see how you guys approached your take on like character relationships and everything else like that too. Cause it's like, oh damn. <laughs> it's fascinating kind of looking at where from Operation NIMBY to the end, kind of where all of this stuff went. So kind of rewinding back to our loose walk through the operations, we then have Feast of the Century Club, which has a lot of cool moments. I think of that as the start of actually Hawthorne's Crusade in some ways of NIMBY's kind of, hey, welcome to Delta Green and Hawthorne's Crusade. Feast of the Century Club is me basically saying, let's play some goddamn Delta Green now. Like, it's like, okay, time to get serious on this. Like, let's get into kind of the nightmare that will be this campaign. And you get to have the moment that I was really hoping we would have with Father Faustus in some ways. The, what does a priest do when they realize that there are gods out there and they've been wrong about gods up till that point? Like, this Catholic god, nah, not a thing. The Ox of Thought, though, that's real. And it's listening, and if you just reach out the right way, it'll help you out. Or in that case, it was the the Century Club and the dear old black goat, if you will, that extends life indefinitely. It starts, I think, the spiral that lays out in our third operation, Conflux. But kind of, you get to see the start of the good man going bad. I think in a major way, it starts in NIMBY, but kind of it, it ramps up in Beast of the Century Club in a major way, and. It's fascinating, too, because that kind of starts the doom clock for Florence as well, because we have the interaction with the obelisk, a completely optional, didn't actually impact that operation that much, but it's kind of one of the three or four things I had written down that like, hey, if this happens, here's the side story we get into of the fact that an obelisk literally grows in Florence, in that case, and it's alive, maybe not in the way that we think of like a human baby as being alive, but it has needs, it has wants, it's going to teach Florence some stuff. In the case of Florence, it's a problem in Nair Lethertep, because while it's not on his level, it's still a insanely powerful eldritch thing that's like, oh, I got another thing I have to deal with now? God damn it. How do I get so this? Happy. Yeah. Like, how sorry. do I get this in the obelisk off the board too i'm just so satisfied to hear that i've annoyed that florence annoyed that or let their tap that's yeah it's just nice also florence loves her rock baby uh, she didn't at first but she grew to love it in a weird way i crack up when you say that the the downturn of a good because after feast of the century club i remember explicitly asking you or at least i remember at least just throwing the concept towards you it's like hey how does Father Faustus become a wizard? Because that was that was the breaking of the faith. That was the let's possibly possibly start looking into performing magic himself. Yep, and it was a possibility. We could have gone that path. Like 
Florence kind of went that path, ironically, but kind of in the most clinical, doctorly approach to it. It's not a regret, but I would have I will always find the idea of playing out the kind of priest that turns cultist story in Delta Green. Be, and it's, it's a fascinating idea, I think. Like, it's a interesting idea for a character that I don't think, kind of just given the, the focuses of Delta Green gets enough focus, I think. Like, the whole idea of... And don't get me wrong, we I have plans that will allow us to dabble in that character concept more in the future, especially when we go outlaw in a more meaningful way, because those are all goddamn wizards with guns. Yeah, it's... You ironically, or maybe unintentionally, ironically is probably the wrong phrase, but unintentionally kind of stumbled into one of the stories I find the most interesting, which is, what makes someone a wizard in this universe? Like, what happens that, like, a lot of reasons to go and contact an eldritch deity from a kind of, like, your life has gone terribly wrong standpoint, but, like, a person who has maybe not everything going for them, but enough things going for them, what does that slide into communing with an old one look like? Like, what does a... I don't want to call it healthy, but like a mentally sound person that chooses to engage with the most insane thing possible. Like, what is that story like? Like, from the perspective of a priest, what does swapping over from a traditional kind of Judeo-Christian approach to worship to a thing that can literally answer your prayers in real time, what is that like? Because... That's a question, like, in the real world I'd like to see answered and kind of that crazy, like, what would it be like to have a god answer your requests in a meaningful, very obvious way? And, yeah, I I found Father Faustus fascinating. I also found Father Faustus's demise, which we'll get to in a couple minutes, equally fascinating because, again, like you said, how do I make this character a wizard? And I'm like, oh, we're going to make this character a wizard, but also then his selfish act got him killed which is fairy worship of the old gods, if you will, at that point. But yeah, it's Feast of the Century Club is weird because it's the, it's got the least of the kind of the Hawthorne aspects to it. It's got the mild surveillance. It's got some kind of seeds to set up. The Foxtrot gets infected with the cowbells at that point, which do you want to know what the super bad secret ending unlocked with the cowbells was? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Need closure there. All right, so if you'd hit Sandy Zero with that, so if you hit Sandy Zero in this game, your character for all purposes is dead. They're alive, but not dead. And they were, again, in Foxtrot's case, he would basically be trapped in a mental loop of a cow being led through a slaughterhouse, being slaughtered, and then kind of waking back up at the start of that for the rest of his living life. Oh, shit. Fuck. What was the Ice Cream Man secret ending? <laughs> ice Cream fucking. All right, so yeah, that that was a little more straightforward, but if if Firestarter had gone Sandy Zero, he would have become the Ice Cream Man. As I said, when we first introduced <laughs> Mr. Frosty, you feel a compulsion to go find children and serve them ice cream. So in that case, it would have been kidnapping children and feeding them chunks of your brain you were scooping out and serving them in ice cream cones. But yeah, you, you'd have killed yourself that way ultimately. But yes, it was the idea that Whatever this Mr. Frosty thing is, like, you were going to become the literal representation of the thing on the ice cream truck of him just serving his head to people, all happy about it. I was really terrified that I was going to achieve that sort of stupid-ass ending in that bunker when I was doing my swimming or whatever have you. (laughs) 
because it was like, oh, you see something shiny at the bottom of the pool. Oh, it's an ice cream scoop. And it's like, it's definitely not a fucking ice cream scoop. What are you talking about? In my head, I'm just like, you know what? Let's 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 ride this out. This is this is what's being given to me. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, you have to surrender control occasionally of your character a little bit, or like you as the player know that's not a goddamn ice cream scoop. It's something messed up. But you as the character are like, I found this ice cream scoop. You guys have ice cream? Yeah. Who wants ice cream? Just fire starter sopping wet in his underpants, walking into the room being like, hey guys, who wants ice cream, man? Holding a human bone that the other two were looking at you and going, dude's holding a human bone. God, that bunker had some of the best like character scenes because, I mean, it really highlighted how downhill things had gone at that point. Yeah, no one's doing good when you get to the bunker, and the bunker will return next season for the record. I am not done with that bunker. So before I forget to ask, what in when we were talking to Freenet Collective dude in Florence yeah. had her little dial-up moment, what were, what were the lights trying to tell her? So that was Yogg-Sothoth talking to you. Yeah, I want to know what he was trying to say. He was just welcoming you to the greater understanding. Basically, if you had understood what he was saying you were going to become a cultist of Yogg-Sothoth. You are basically be given the option of membership. Like, Yogg-Sothoth is aware of the fact that this whole Malin cult subterfuge thing has kind of run its course. He's looking for what's next. Like, yeah, William's a great anchor and it's keeping him there, but like, hey, this person seems to understand things. They know code. They know disease. They know patterns they're a functioning human being still that's not like a brain in a jar at this point bet they're useful in some way that's terrifying it was basically yogg saying hi like do you want to come like do you want to know some stuff like i know so much stuff you might be into do you want to know about it terrifying so that actually I'm just kind of abandoned, kind of trying to go uh, operation by operation at those bunks were bouncing around so much. So that ties back into so some of the stuff that kind of got missed or is a little more obscure to get into. If you had got like, um, some of the stuff you could have researched on Orbita, specifically its founders and stuff, you could have gotten into the fact that so Orbita gets wiped out by a ritual. Like they try and the founder of Orbita, or the CEO of Orbita gets desperate and tries to contact Yogg-Sothoth, not realizing what that's going to do to kind of like try and save his failing tech company. He has funneled way too much money into weird, not panning out yet research. And that kind of opens the door for Yogg-Sothoth to begin infecting the building and kind of whispering to the Freenet Collective people, which is where the code comes from. And the code lets Yogg-Sothoth corrupt the servers in a more meaningful way, turning them into an anchor he can latch on to and kind of pull himself from world to world at that point. It's a chain of events, basically. It's kind of, Florence would have been in that case kind of the third link in whatever Yogg-Sothoth was trying to do in that moment type of thing. Again, don't get me wrong, there, there was an ending that could have played out where Tranche would have put two in the back of Florence's head, realizing, oh, you're a key now. God damn it. Was Florence always destined to, air quotes, die? Not necessarily. Okay. Yeah, it's it's kind of more of, Various endings that could have played out a variety of different ways. So I think I don't start having fun with it, but like I had no idea that like what did Florence wind up having for a natural like 40 by the end or something? Something ridiculous like that, which I've never had a character get even remotely close to that. I the highest I think before that I've had a character get was 10%. Yeah. 
Yeah, so kind of building off of that, you have in the background, you have Nair Lethretep realizing that if he keeps feeding Florence unnatural information, eventually Tranche may kill her. You have Yogg-Sothoth realizing that Florence is receptive to what his kind of voice is at that point and maybe can use her. You have the monolith, which is Ligur, have you pronounced it? A kind of a, a alt variant of that that's now bonded with Florence that's kind of using her to develop, like, for all purposes, it, she is its mom. It's also a sentient kind of weird psychic conscious that happens to live in a rock, which it's using her to get around eventually. And we've not heard the last of Florence's rock for the record either. It, it's still out there. It's got several millennia to bounce around our world in type of things. It looks for its mom. But yeah, so basically you have Florence who's stuck in the middle of three exceedingly powerful eldritch things that all realize the best way to use Florence is feed her more unnatural stat for their own ends. And that was a freak accident. That was just, that's the path Dylan took Florence down. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, if Florence had survived the final operation after the whole dial-up thing, she might have just shot herself, like, in her hotel room Yep, when she was alone. Because she has that very, I gotta protect people mentality. And once she hits a certain point where she realizes she could be a vector and end up hurting people because of it, I, I don't know. I don't know if it would have happened, but it is definitely a possibility. Yeah, Florence succeeded in the uh, a very rare thing in Delta Green that we kind of blew past pretty quickly, which was a successful unnatural check. Yeah. Like, that's not a normal thing. That was pretty crazy. That was a trip, and I just see back. What was it? It was like not even like the most startling of odds. It was like you got, you got that like single digit or something like that. I don't remember, but I I wasn't sure if we were going to get an unnatural check passed this season. I was I was I was excited that it did it happened though, but. Yeah, I mean, the thing that started killing Florence's sanity, it wasn't like, it wasn't the culmination of of everything because she was just burning all of her bonds. It was, she got so much unnatural that her maximum sanity was going lower than what her current sanity could be or current sanity was. And that that's what started that big, the sanity spiral for her. Yeah, and that was the, you didn't realize it was playing out, but that was kind of three eldritch entities being like, no, no, you're useful and or I have a plan you fit into. Just got to keep making you open to this. Like, let's turn you into the wizard, whether yeah, you want to be or not. As part of the recordings for the 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 mess, the last messages I'm going to do, I'm also going to do like a little mini recording where Florence is like in her own head trying to figure out how to get out of this end here and slowly going insane. So you can use that if you want to. Cool. I guess to kind of give us a little more structure again. Cabin in the Woods, a.k.a. Conflux, our, our first death, the death of Father Faustus, who, if he had just not projected that sand damage, would have lived, but his selfish act got him killed. You can't script moments like that. That was an amazing moment. I absolutely blame Florida <laughs> on, <laughs> on that. Because it, it was like, all right, cool. Like, you know what? Yeah. Fuck the church. <laughs> you started acting like Florence and then you die. I guess I couldn't cut it. I don't know. But I just like, oh, God, that that was fun. Frust that was fun. Frustrating. It was frustrating in the sense that like, oh, shit, this is a lot more investigative and puzzle elements. 
which I'm not the best of, but at the same time, just kind of slowly exploring these things is kind of just being able to tap into the other part of Delta Green where it's like, this is, this is a big part of this game. Like the detective work, like you, you gotta be good detective work. Really weird and fun moments regard, regarding that too. Large cache of just awful, awful Charlie creations in terms of these NPCs. Good Lord. The way that that played out though, like I think we talked about it for like 30 minutes after the game, just how the dice told that story of Father Faust's end because it was like, like you said, that wasn't scripted. I mean, none of it is, but the dice just played it out so perfectly. Yeah, we talked about this some, I think, in our Twitch thing for it, but if you go back and listen to that arc, the amount of we didn't realize it was foreshadowing that goes on the entirety of that arc up until the ultimate demise. Like, it's, I look back, I'm like, did I know he was going to die subconsciously? Like, did I plan this? No, I did not. I didn't think, like, like I didn't think anyone was going to die for that. Like, maybe I'm like, I didn't expect it to be, fo- I didn't, I was expecting Faustus. Like, maybe that was a Foxtrot moment or something because you do something like impulsive, but I don't know. Like, my mind was that either the house was going to be a TPK or no one was going to die or like, yeah, I, I had no idea how that thing was going to play out the way it did type of thing. Like, it's one of those ones where the way it played out is cooler than I could have ever imagined it did. And that operation is strange because I think it's our shortest arc out of all the arcs. And you guys engaged with, like, maybe a third of the content of it. Like, there's definitely more stuff you could investigate for it. But at the same time, by investigating that, you wouldn't have gotten that ending. And I think that ending, like, it's it's so important to the overall campaign, I think. Like, it's such a, it's an interesting kind of moment that just sets the tone of everything moving forward. And it's weird. Like, the operation I thought was going to be the shortest is one where you were in Michigan. Like, I thought that would be the shortest operation out of all of them because, in my mind, it's like, oh, you just question everyone in the building until you find the mask. and. That took a bunch of kind of crazy, awesome rambling approaches that I didn't even expect. Kind of thing. I had stuff prepared for because, like, yeah, here's the world around this. But it's like, oh, shit, we're actually going to her house. I didn't think we were going to go here at all. Cool. I think it was because of this operation where you really just showed us that the most mundane anything could be equally as dangerous <laughs> as like a, a cannibal cult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the juxtaposition I was going for because you have the exceedingly obvious like you guys even guessed it and then didn't kind of i thought it was a joke but like cannibal cult obviously dangerous ghost house how bad can that possibly be (laughs) we beat 13 cannibals last operation okay so that that whole like father faustus dying and you saying it being important to like the whole arc totally agree because it really like it made it more natural for us to like be dead set focused on wanting to figure out whatever this eye thing was once we found out that it had been a setup it because i mean it gave foxtrot and florence like the want for revenge yeah at least florence had the want i don't i can't speak for foxtrot i think foxtrot always wants revenge yeah (laughs) he's that might be a dangerous path for him yeah even more so when he started developing more disorders i think it's one of those ones where kind of like it's Conflux is a special operation for me within the kind of overall campaign because it's the most abstract in what the danger is. Like every other operation has a pretty obvious, like, okay, here's the air quotations monster. Like there's a way you could have played through Conflux 
where it would have never been dangerous. Like, there's nothing that's ever going to shoot at you. There's never going to be a monster monster. It's just a house, which kind of gets at the whole kind of Delta Greenness of it, where it's like, no, no, you never know how this is going to play out. You never know what's dangerous. And the fact that, like, that's what I flat out kill the character in a very, like, no, it's not you fell through a floor. It's it, it killed the character. A house murdered a character through very specific mechanics. It's just kind of like that's still three at its core. Like it's one of those ones where it's like, aha, you underestimated the ghost house. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> and so I guess fun fact about that one, all the NPCs for Conflux are named after Longmire characters. <laughs> yeah. Like, there was a Sheriff Longmire in that thing, and God bless that town for having three different law enforcement organizations all within city limits, like that, that from a handler standpoint, it's a fascinating thing to set up where it's like, I can have law agencies that don't get along with each other. Like you have sheriff, local PD, and state PD all there, and they all have their own very specific jurisdictions, and they don't get along. So that's how U.S. law enforcement works, unfortunately. So, Chad, we, you had said earlier how you were interested in seeing Florence go from like being basically allergic to guns to just willing to use them. And... It was after we basically, I mean, we, we committed an act of domestic terrorism on the, the Century Club. And it was when she shot Samuel, I think, that I finally decided that she had lost her, her innocence, I guess, in the Delta Green world. I mean, despite the fact that the Samuel was an animal, he was still a person. And that, that really does take a toll on you. I mean, the character backgrounds and stuff, there's Foxtrot, who's a CIA operative. And then who is a war vet? Like both of us have this weird, I think I, I wanted to play into both of us have this kind of like specific understanding of like what it means and what it takes to kind of bring yourself to the point where like you can raise an arm against a, another person. But then like Florence, it was, it was this weird thing of just like, all right, cool. There's still a one person who doesn't have that blood on Trying to preserve that was always an was it always an interesting side thought? Yeah, I it was just you know we had done that that whole the way we dealt with the Feast of the Century Club that was like the safest way to do it because if we had stormed in we'd probably die but also super fucked up you know we gassed a bunch of people and yeah. and then the guy was laying on the ground dying and in that moment he wasn't saying what she wanted to hear so she just killed him. Uh, and the Feast of the Century Club is a fascinating one because Delta in the books go on about how, like, this is not a game about guns, but so many operations, like, on paper can be solved by guns. And, yeah, you could bust into the Century Club and shoot a couple people, but I think we talked about this some after the fact, was the whole idea that there's 13 of them. Even if just, like, half the men should get off some knife attacks, there's too many of them for you to mathematically eliminate in a fast enough number of turns to on paper survive that like they're just gonna stab you to death as you try and gun them down so it's like okay yeah you, you could go in guns blazing you could kind of have your badass action hero movie moment but like it's not gonna end well imagine if you'd busted in there with the withering being thrown at you like the fact that we almost had a one-shot kill because of ritual it's like oh yeah no it's still a wizard they've got stuff that transcends this whole gun knife violence thing that would be going on like it was possible for our wizard in there to kind of kill a character a turn on paper hypothetically yeah that was super fucked up 
fucking the withering. It was super rad when it was like, like revealed. And I, I'd really love just playing into that as of all the people to experience the withering. It was the man of faith. Your gods can't protect you here. Yeah. I felt really bad for Austin's because I felt like they, they were probably the most, how can I put it? They were the most, it's, you know how in, was it the Dark Knight, Harvey Dent was like the white knight who was like the unbreakable one who they kind of looked on who wasn't fallen from grace. Like that's what the Faustus kind of felt like because they had, like they were a morally good character it felt like. Yeah. And then to have all their like, basically if all their stuff that they that they believed in just crumble apart and then they were focused on, it just kind of felt really bad. I mean, her story was really great, but as as we were playing it, holy shit, I felt really bad. For yeah, we didn't really get into it much because we never got to a point where it's going to come back up. Remember, Faustus is blackmailed essentially into Delta Green. That was part of kind of him joining was him being like, yo, we're going to bring up your Navy SEAL background in the worst way possible. Let you come do some work for us. Yeah. Oh, that part of the background was never explored because that character died. Yeah. But that, but Faustus did a lot of war crimes. And oh, tell us all yeah. about that. Oh, let's yeah. go. He got characters archetype. Let's go. No, like the reason why Faustus was blackmailed into into joining Delta Green was because like during his time with the Navy SEALs, he was not the best person, not like a good person. His conversion to Catholicism and finding the good light, air quotes, was fairly recent. And so that's why he's just been doing this to atone for his previous history. Yeah, we didn't kind of dig into it much. We didn't talk about that. Like, despite the fact that Jad was playing Faustus as a priest, we used the Navy SEAL stat block. Like, the whole idea of this kind of chaplain, I'm going to find God thing, that's a recent thing. That's was, that was something we actually talked about extensively behind the scenes was the fact that, like, this is a man of violence who's really trying to turn around, and, like, does he even deserve to? And... Then you have Delta Green go, yo, we know what you used to do. We know who you actually are. You're our kind of psycho, but we're not going to explain that to the rest of the squad ever. You're just going to be a priest. That's fine with us. A priest with 70% firearms. <laughs> and I, I totally forgot the fact that that's kind of why Faustus had like a very straight to the point. I have a structured plan as to how we're going to interrogate Vicky, who is a straight-up innocent bystander, and then be a-okay with everything that kind of is there. Like, he's he didn't have any kind of, like, second thought. He just fell back on his true nature in order for him to kind of, like, look, this is how we're going to do this, this is where this can end up into, and this is how we're going to get this information. It's going to go. And this is how we're going to set it up afterwards in order for us to take the blame off of our hands. Completely forgot about that entire backstory for she. <laughs> Until just now. It's something I thought was most interesting about that character was the amount of time that we, like, me and I talked back and forth about the fact that I'm like, hey, are you okay with, like, this being why Faustus, a priest, A, has a Navy SEAL stat block, and B, is in Delta Green? Because, like, on paper, why did Delta Green grab this ex-Navy chaplain? Oh, it's because they have a hilarious amount of blackmail they're like yeah no you're gonna come do dumb stuff for us because if we ever release this you'll never get to be a priest again you goddamn monster can you tell us some of the foxtrot's backstory stuff we didn't really explore any of that either me and alex never really kind of we left that vague like it's one of those ones where kind of it was the something happened 
on one of the CIA gigs. I think I've what's the exact answer we came to? I'm not sure he even realizes a natural thing. It was more just it was handled correctly by Delta Green standards, and Delta Green was like, "Oh, this guy actually did a good job. Cool." Yeah, I think you had mentioned there was like there was like a an event, and it was just like it. You know, I was just doing standard op stuff, and it wasn't anything like that I normally wouldn't do, but it just so happened in this particular operation, I noticed something. And it was one of those things where like, you know how you have like a deja vu moment where you do the double take? It was very much kind of that vibe. I remember when we talked about it, Charlie, as far as that character background goes. And so I just was just not aware of it because again, he's so objective focused. If he's If it's not part of the main like goal, it's not really anything important to him yeah not, not to put you on blast but like you like as a human being who does not know much about cthulhu and that stuff like you had a hard time kind of coming up with an idea of what that inciting moment would be and that's when we kind of came with the idea of like he doesn't know why he's in delta green like it's just like he did the job correctly because he does the job correctly if that makes any sense was that kind of a cool idea to play with yeah yeah that was the the, I, the tool we had talked about like it's very much like i i mean the whole time i just the assumption was I don't know exactly yeah. why they just picked me. So it's one of those things that you just assume somebody in the higher chain, you know, in, in whatever government shadows are going on. Someone was like, yeah, no, this guy has an impressive background. And they kind of went with it. Like that was always his assumption. Cause that's what you would imagine someone who works in that type of like, I guess at least my imagining of what that kind of person would be in that field. You would assume if you get called in, for another job it's because someone or you know whoever is your superior or whoever's in charge recommended you to someone else and so it's very much just kind of felt like one of those things gotcha yeah there's a there's a weirdness of despite foxtrot being kind of overtly a bad person he's actually when you kind of like put backstories together the closest to neutral of the entire squad in some ways like he's not atoning for anything he's just kind of doing if that makes any sense yeah my character is not one to feel like i guess well not guilt not to say he didn't feel guilt but like he wasn't yeah it wasn't one of those like he's atoning for something it's not like he's trying to live up to someone he's not trying to impress someone you know i mean he has no one that he needs to impress or want to impress anyway he just wants to get the job done because that's what motivates him his biggest like draw and whatever kept his character going was always like get the job done and that's yeah, how his approach to everything yeah we spent a lot of time kind of honing in on what foxtrot's like motivation and drive was and it like it, like it's it's not quite that but like the idea we kind of landed on very early on was the idea where he's kind of an adrenaline junkie but more kind of a like challenging operation junkie and delta green looks at that and goes Oh, so you like tough situations, do you? We got nothing but the worst situations manageable, and just kind of that's the way in type of thing. Like they present the entire organization of Delta Green as the hardest operations you'll ever undertake type of thing from a CIA lens, where it's like, oh, uh, yeah, you're pretty good at the CIA thing. What if there was CIA plus? <laughs> yeah, very much that. Because I mean, like for him, the void. And he was feeling was that of like the the job, the excitement, the objective. There's nothing else there that like he needed to do. So that that was like my approach to the character. But 
yeah, I try to, I mean, I, because he was a CIA-esque character, I tried to keep him as vague as possible for that very reason, which is probably part of the, you know, which is pretty much the reason why I never refer to him as Javier. And it was only revealed by, I believe, the first time we ever said Javier, like in the actual campaign beyond like when we were introducing characters is what Nia Lothrop when he says it. That, yeah, because the house is, uh, the, yeah, yes, because... Diametrics is after Nyarlathotep shows up, and because Nyarlathotep is Nyarlathotep, he's just like, "Oh, hey, hey, Javier, how's it going?" Because I know your real name, because it's just a name, you silly mortal. Yeah. So, like, that's why he it was purposely kept vague for that reason, because that's just that detachment he has from people, as opposed to like the work. As a handler, I loved the like double layer of like wouldn't do the foxtrot thing. Kept going by John. I'm like, I hope people get this. Cause it's a really kind of fun running, not like gag, but like, ah, oh, these these code names are stupid. I'm just John using your real name. Yes, this is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> like that weird mindset tells you everything you need to know about who foxtrot is on like a really interesting level of like, no, no. I'm going to break this ridiculous kind of code name thing we do with a normal name that's also technically a code name. Yeah. Code names within code names. I can't remember when we were talking about this. I don't know if it, it was just you and I, Charlie, or it was everybody before we started the campaign. But I remember saying that, like, you know, people like showing up as F cell, T cell, J cell or whatever, and just having all the names like start with the same letter would seem suspicious to anyone who was really, like, looking at it. Oh, absolutely. Like, in the real world, the whole codename system we do, because it's a fun thing for the podcast and it's kind of a Delta Greeny thing. Yeah. Uh, hello, I'm Mr. Yellow, I'm Mr. Yancey, and I'm Mr. Yelnak. I'm sorry, you all guys are obviously secret agents, correct? Like, th there's no uh, way those names pass. Yeah. And it's also because, John, while it is a fake name, I mean... Do you really know it's fake? John is technically a real name people go by. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's fairly common. John. And it's a very common name. So it yeah. like, blends in, if you will. Yeah. Now, we got a bunch of kind of questions about the time skip that happened as part of our time in Vermont. The time skip was always going to happen. The severity of it was always kind of up to what happened in the house. I kind of worked out the math where kind of four there's a rough thing for like every minute that passes in the real world. I think it was like about a, like 12 hours passed in the house, give or take. And as the willpower drain gets worse and worse, the time dilation both gets better and worse simultaneously. Like the minimum amount of time they could have jumped was, I think it was about a, it was between a week and a month. The three months were because there was a death and they tried a bunch of things. The entirety of the cabin is tied to willpower drain. Like everything there is obviously designed to sap your willpower, but also the byproducts of it. Like we didn't kind of get into it in full detail, but like the uh, the people that were upstairs in the bed, they can come back to life, and then they basically reveal you need to get out of here. And by the way, because one of you's dead, you can leave. Like the door is open. The moment someone dies or kind of hits willpower zero, the door opens and you can leave. Type of thing. That's why some people come back, but also not everyone does because they don't figure that out necessarily. Type of thing. Yeah, if you dug into kind of the history of the disappearances, people that went up in like groups of three or four, they typically come back. Couples don't. Because we also ended up solving that issue in the end too, right? Because we, we extinguished the hearth. 
Yeah, you guys actually managed to solve the house. Yeah, it's basically you have to kind of stop the rejuvenating light from hitting the rest of the house. And again, this is me kind of playing with the fact where Delta Green's not about guns, but I'm like, you solve the puzzle by shooting something, but the puzzle is you have to get the light away from it so you can have the snowfall. And yeah, like, yeah, you, you solve the house, but also you solve the house too late in kind of air quotations. Like, you could have left the moment the house just hit the ground. It's good you solved it, but yeah. So I have a question for Jad and Alex. I know that we had talked about this before, but not in, in depth. When we were in Francis's house and Florence told you guys her whole like mass murder backstory, were you guys expecting anything like that or that she hidden her true nature away well enough? Not really. It actually was kind of a shock. Like I, I imagine, well, not knowing your backstory, you were pretty like to yourself. I imagine you're, at least from my character's perspective, I assume that you were kind of in a similar situation, almost to Faustus, where you were kind of bribed into it. Or not bribed, but like blackmailed into it, because obviously you didn't seem like you wanted to be there. But you were also very much like, yeah, let's just get this done and be done with it as well. So it's, yeah, I was not expecting that at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely a interesting thing, especially to kind of like relate it back to like Bryson incident as well, where it's just like, ah, okay. Oh yeah, the the hints at Florence has killed and will kill again, but not the way you think, are all over the campaign up until the big reveal, yeah. So, we never actually got back into, so, I gave Charlie a small, like, backstory for Florence, and in her backstory, I explain why she has the limp, and it's because... Her and her her girlfriend, actually, they've known each other for a long time. They were being abused by her older brother. And it's kind of hinted at, but not said, that Florence might have had something to do with her brother's death when she was younger, but it's never really explored. So Florence has always potentially had the, the not want, but the willingness to indirectly be responsible for someone dying. That's, that's such a weird <laughs> trip. And that's such a, that like, the character relationship between Florence and literally anybody else is always such a fascinating interaction for me to watch. Just because, like, I learned offloading through your character, <laughs> specifically. Like, I've never seen that game mechanic until, I've, I've never, like, that game mechanic is just like, all right, cool, that's like Florence's thing. <laughs> yeah. Like Florence is okay because... She compartmentalizes and she's the master at compartmentalizing because it's like, you know what? This isn't my fault. I know whose fault this is and just goes on about her life. Yeah, I will say, like, there's a certain level of monster that, like, my character was, but like, there's a certain level of coldness to have bonds and relationships and to just use them as, like, tools to offload your sanity. Felt like a very bizarre cold to it, but I get it. I respect it. Don't get me wrong, but it was very like interesting to like watch that like unfold throughout the campaign because it was like you immediately like whenever you got hit with a big sand thing, you with no hesitation were like, "I'm offloading on so and so," and then the roll came through. Like it was, yeah, it was so really impressive. <laughs> also, also kind of written into her backstory is like. Like Florence has has had strife in her relationship with her girlfriend in the past, and it's written it's a like bad relationship on it's paper. Yeah, really bad because they've been together since they were like teenagers, right? So they've been together for a very long time, and they're like kind of co- well, okay. 
the girlfriend is like codependent on her, but Florence was kind of like borderline sociopath and didn't really like didn't like bond the same way. So in her backstory, like she has all this strive with her girlfriend and kind of gaslights her at points and just is awful. Yeah, I, like we alluded to it a couple times, but like then also that bond took such a major hit after the time skip that we didn't get a chance to kind of dig into that. But like that relationship is characterized by just a real uncomfortable kind of disproportional power struggle. <laughs> and like you may have missed kind of Tranche slash Fiddlesticks occasional allusions to that. Like Tranche knows who Florence is a hundred percent, A, because she has access to her dossier, but B, she knows Fiddlestick. She 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 knows Florence in a more meaningful way in some ways. Like think back on all the times where Tranche showed up and was like, Hey, here's this ridiculous situation we're inflicting upon you that I know you're gonna be fine with. That's because she knows who Florence is at the at the core type of thing. It's like, no, no. You're, you're like me. You're also bad. Yeah, yeah, and there's this, like, switch at some point in the campaign. I can't remember where it is, but it's when, like, Florence realizes that she doesn't, like, she stopped not caring about not having people, and that's when she starts to try to repair her relationship. So and it, it happens fails. after a couple bonds got broken. It happens right after the time skip where that bond took some major hits, and admittedly, this is me putting words, but I always interpreted that as she realized that this relationship that she's kind of taken for granted might not be there anymore. Not from a good person slash like loving girlfriend perspective, but from a like, no, I want my things I've always owned to still be things I own perspective goes about trying to repair it. So it it was kind of like that in the beginning, but I think part of it was Faustus dying on her watch was like one of the big cruxes in changing her outlook on everything. Sure. Because it was her first operation, too, leading a team. And, like, it was, she just had a different outlook on people and how things were because Faustus never came back. Yep. And you can't fix Faustus because he's dead. Is he, though? I don't know. He comes back as a wizard, Charlie. I will love you. I will absolutely <laughs> love you. He's not coming back as that. Oh. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> mm. Is it spooky time? I need to do a roll, Sandy. Now that we're not playing the game, <laughs> we're always playing up. Delta Green. I got the game of all fucking Sanity roll. What's up? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, just because a character leaves, uh, just because a character dies or uh, leaves the equation, as I kind of hinted at with Florence, definitely by all measures dying, but not necessarily being dead, does not mean these characters are out of the uh, negative modifier pantheon of NPCs that may come back and horrible and or weird ways down the road for delta green stuff i wouldn't call father faustus alive still but there are various definitions of dead within the delta green universe that might apply to him more than the traditional version we're familiar with or i might be messing with you all again but you'll have to keep listening to find that one out yeah so we then stroll into weirdwood i what i initially thought was not going to be everyone's favorite operation but i think has become everyone's favorite operation in some weird ways because that shit was bonkers by the end. I love yeah. Weirdwood so much. It's just, it goes so many bizarre places that I, when I wrote the kind of Nair Lethrotep in the apartment stuff, I'm like, there's no way we get this to trigger. And so I guess going back to kind of the super secret bad Florence ending, you had to have that happen for the super secret dark ending to happen. You basically have to have Nair Lethrotep go, 
Oh, hey, Florence. I remember you. You're just at some uh, background annoyance. I'm now actively invested in where you're going next. I have my eye on you, for lack of a better phrase. Like, yeah, that was that was kind of one of the two. That was kind of one of the kind of steps to that. I I love the fact that we never actually see the monster in Weirdwood. Like, we get the aftermath of it, but you guys managed to navigate that entire operation without ever actually encountering the tree golem, which I, again, did not plan for. That thing played out so differently than how I thought it was going to, but I love how it played out so much more than what my brain was like. This is the correct way. It's like, no, no, this was the correct way. This is so much better. God, that whole kidnapping sequence... Like, I'm going to remember that as one of, like, the highlights of my every role-playing game I've played because it's so many levels of, like, you know, this is just the struggle and how it would seem in real life. And then the the way that we covered it up was so fucked up. So, and I think kind of one of the things that doesn't come across when it comes to when we dice roll, a turn in Delta Green takes, like, seconds. Like, I think it's at longest eight seconds, at shortest it's, like, a second. So... If you actually think about that entire kidnapping, the number of friends we took, it only really took like maybe 20 or 30 seconds total. So that playing out in real life would be a very smooth, thought out, successful kidnapping from the behind the scenes actual kidnapping thing. It was a goddamn mess of people like scrambling and cars not quite driving correctly. Yeah, it's a beautiful example of, yeah, it worked, but. Behind the scenes, it was absolute mayhem. I love that kidnapping scene because I feel it's like that was one of the first times things really got out of hand. Like yeah. that was our first big failure. Like somehow lucked out, but like first big failure. I felt super bad kind of even thinking about like, because I, I just remember that specific moment where I had the choice of like, what do we do now? And then it. It was like, all right, cool, Jad, your turn. And I still had like three seconds of straight up dead air because I'm still thinking, do I shoot this person? Do I shoot this person? I'm going to shoot this person, I think, because this is where my like logic leads to game wise. But at the same time, after thinking about that, like, this is awful. <laughs> why am I? Why? Why do I have to shoot this person? I yeah, know it goes back to kind of the whole idea. I talked about how looking back we can have all of these like oh we didn't have to do x y z but in the moment you're trying to play the game when you're trying to make the decision in your character's mind it's like yeah put your put your mob think of where fire starters at that but like this is weird kidnapping going on this is person's called the cops it's like oh what do i do kill them turn it from a kidnapping into a random murder i guess because yeah. like i don't know what it is between it's it's funny because like i i contextualize delta green differently than i contextualize say like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever the heck. Like we always make the joke about murder hobos in like Dungeons and Dragons or any kind of high fantasy like role playing game. But now we're kind of we're setting this situation up in a real world where shit like this is plausible. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it's the correct answer to figure like gameplay wise, not not the correct answer morally or anything, because we were not in the moral right in a lot of this campaign, but the the random murder, the killing of this bypasser, like it, I mean, it really did save us from the police coming after us because they were focused on a murder instead. It's a hell of a distraction. Like you want to kind of divert attention away from a broad daylight kidnapping. That's how you do it. Like, and it kind of, 
I think we talked about this some kind of some of the roles I was asked about. Hey, what's your law at for that? Like there are ways you could have gone about that non-lethally, but kind of in true to character form. Firestarter wouldn't know that if you shoot someone below the waist, it's not attempted murder. It's just assault with a deadly weapon, which from my kind of like legal standpoint is a dramatically different thing. Also, you typically survive the other one. But yeah, like it's a there's a kind of there's a bunch of parts in the background that kind of A play into character knowledge, but B also kind of play into what the character would know in that exact moment where it's like it's panic time. Ah, uh, time to think, time to think, time to think. Nope, got nothing. We just do these things. Yeah, it's it's so again, I it Weirdwood was the winner of our hey, give us a location. I had so much fun researching Savannah, Georgia. It's such a weird city, like I, I'm, we're gonna keep going back to Savannah. I fear, like maybe not next operation, but like the fact there is no canonical Delta Green operation set in Savannah is a missed opportunity because that place is a is a historical Delta Green operation. Just with the amount of weird shit that's happened there, that's I could cool. not make up the weird stuff that happened in Savannah. Kind of crazy. There isn't an official op in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. yeah. I remember you were really excited about the setting of Savannah, Georgia. Like, you were really, really excited. I initially, when I started research, I'm like, okay, Savannah, Georgia, known for those, like, tree tunnels and fountains. I knew how many fountains there were. And, like, a weekend later of researching Savannah, I'm like, you could run an entire goddamn campaign just in Savannah about the Savannah, Georgianness of Savannah. Like... Just, like, every time I thought I hit, like, okay, this is as weird as the history of Savannah, Georgia can get, I'd find something weirder. Like, we didn't even get in, I think we talked we talked about it briefly, but, like, that city lost, like, I, I, I'm going to throw a random number up, but I, I think, like, a, a close, like, above 50% percentage of the city got killed off by a viral outbreak. And that's only one of the truly terrible things that happened to that city in the span of, like, the 1800s to the 1950s. Like, just, like, any one of these things would be, like, holy shit, that's insane. But, like, from a historical context, the, like, level of brutality and, like, fucked upness that was the slave trade in Savannah, Georgia, because it was a port city, like, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, probably not taught as much as it really should be in school type of things. So, like, this is one of the darkest parts of the slave trade, not actual slave, but, like, the actual mechanics of the merchandising of it. This was a major point for that, and that was fucked up and insane. And then you have this plague outbreak, and then you have a bunch of other crazy-ass fucked-up stuff that happened in that city. Like, there's an actual legal story, a real story that happened that involves voodoo and a defendant dying the day after being exonerated of a crime, and everyone's reaction to it just was, oh, he broke the deal with the voodoo priestess, that's why he died. Like, And you just go, oh yeah, that makes sense in the grand context of this. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. I love it. I, that'd actually be kind of interesting, I think. Running a, a Delta Green campaign just set in one city, and you have to really be careful about cover-ups because you need to maintain your image and everything because yeah. it's an interesting idea yeah it's a absolutely fascinating setting like it's the again when in with it was like okay this is not it's like okay it's a deep south city we already did deep south what am i gonna do with this and just by the end i'm like oh god i need to go to this place because this place is absolutely goddamn insane like the history of this place is the most like y'all are making this up right like this didn't happen oh all of it happened 
Shit, and the never being more than 10 feet away from a dead body? That's a thing you guys publicize? Really? Yeah, I, I, the number of mass graves in that city because of various historical events that happened, you're just like, why is this on the tourism website? You'd like to see where everybody dies. It's, it's... Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I had so much fun doing Weirdwood. Like, it's... It, yeah, I... Jimmy's a favorite NPC character through all of this just because, like, I, I love when you can have an NPC that you can just hate. Like, if, on no level do you feel bad about hating Jimmy by the end because, oh, God, does Jimmy suck. And you guys didn't even get into some of how much Jimmy fucking sucked. We got into enough. We got to hear yeah. him try to Oh, yeah, no, it. he gave off big incel vibes. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> I already took so much psychic damage just by playing this that that campaign from jimmy like not like as a character but like as a person <laughs> like i took psychic damage from fucking what's his face the dude who ran who ran the the paranormal magazine century danny yeah yeah our century danny jimmy was just like you know what this is too much to handle <laughs> dude i had to try to flirt with jimmy <laughs> oh that whole sequence of you having to like flirt with jimmy was so fucking good because he Charlie did a great job having him be completely oblivious to Florence's advances. It was just a perfect interaction. I have Jimmy to say. fucking sucks. That's the whole point yeah. of Jimmy. Weirdwood leads us into our second to last operation, leads us into diametrics. So a couple of fun little Easter eggs about that one. There's a bunch of bones, the TV show references thrown about that operation. Like the lead anthropologist name is Celie Brennan, who is the two main characters of bones names mashed together into one character. You caught that. Kudos to you. I'm not sure anyone else did, but my wife from the other room hearing us record that yelled, why are you doing an episode of bones? <laughs> amusing yeah we talked about this kind of as a side thing after the fact that operation is inspired by i think it's only a paragraph in the handler's guiders the agent's handbook where they talk about this smooth mask and there is no canonical operation for it but it's one of the things that kind of it's it's the part of delta green books delta green books they have these little sides throughout the book that like i always find fascinating they allude to some weirdness and i fell in love with this little like oh it's this mask that like its characteristics are it's really smooth but also it slowly drives the people interacting with it to darker and darker kind of pursuits of pleasure but like pleasure in air quotations where like it obviously ends in murder. either someone runs away with it and goes on a serial killer spree or one of the people involved with it winds up dead like it's the you eventually must you must the mask eventually encourages you to experience the ecstasy of taking someone's life, and that's where our kind of operation picks up. Obviously, it's a trap. Uh, our dear friends at Malin, I'm not sorry, Milan have sent in this box, basically gift wrapped for F Cell. You get the initial hints that maybe something weird's going on in Pines End, like you meet in a fucking Starbucks after all. Like that's a thing that probably should be a red flag to people in hindsight. Like. The common collective Miss Pine is like, no, we're meeting in the middle of a public place where people can overhear us because reasons that don't become clear till later. That entire operation is weird because the mask and that have the whole hunt for the mask is more setting up the it is a delivery system of, hey, you're going to Francis's house to 
get into the real reason this operation exists. And I thought the hunt for the mask was actually really kind of cool. It was also me playing around with this idea where one of the most powerful tools you can give players in Delta Green is fake credential. It was the idea of, okay, I've always wanted to do this. Literally fell into place where I was looking up like, hey, what federal agency kind of do stolen antiquities and it's ice. And I'm like, okay, how bad would ice credentials be at a fucking college? And I'm like, oh, really terrible. Fantastic. This fits. It's so good. Credentials you don't want to use. I don't think we use them at all. No, you did I not. objected to those credentials so, like, violently that it was a physical reaction as well. Yeah, <laughs> we're ICE agents. It's like, mm. why would you do this, Charlie? The exact reason you're reacting to. I will say I love that the credentials were ICE because it very much, like, it showed where our moral compass was because we were like, yeah, we'll gas people in a old house. Yeah, we'll murder a lady who was being, you know, released this like plague. But I refuse to be an ICE agent. Yeah. Like <laughs> it was just an interesting contrast there. We're human beings. We're not that much monster. Right? I think it's like even if you kind of look at it from the would this complicate the operation to use these credentials? The answer is yeah, they're gonna they're gonna make it worse. Like these credentials do not necessarily help you like, they'll get you access to stuff but like some people are probably going to stop talking to you or not talk to you as kind of bluntly given your federal or agency of choice at that point but yeah so the one thing that was kind of missed is the fact that if you dug into the law aspects of that if you've, if you've kind of taken the investigation wide and been like hey have there been some weird murders or anything like that there were actually several murders of homeless people that had transpired that were identical to the one that happened in the building. So the, like, the escalation of mask to murder had happened elsewhere. It was just the first one that was, what's the right phrase, more directly linked to the mask, basically. There's a jarring, I think, feeling of like how fast it goes from the agents show up and, hey, there's a murder within 12 hours of y'all being there. But it's like, no, this has been building to this there. But also like, yeah, it's knocking off Sabrina is beneficial to Victor and the couple at large, but also it's a murder of opportunity and it's a riskier one adding to the spice of the murder. The mask was compelling them to. And I enjoy the fact that you all fucking fell for the red herring of no, they're just a kinky BDSM couple. No, they're not. <laughs> this explains the weirdness. No, it doesn't. And you know what was... kids are getting up to these days. Yeah. Remind me, Charlie, where I know this was at a university, but was this you said this was Michigan? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, Ann Arbor, exactly. Michigan's where this one takes place. Yep. Okay. That's that is the operation where we realized, like, really realized it was just a setup. Yeah. That's when we started questioning, like, all the other operations beforehand, too, where we were just like, is it all? Were we all just the entire time just following someone else's agenda? Yes. Yeah. The answer was yes. Also, just to add a little tidbit to the whole ICE agent thing, just really quick. Ann Arbor, Michigan is really close to the border between Canada and the United States. I know. Which means ICE agents would have had way more authority because they were within a 100-mile radius or 100-mile range of the border, which I don't know if you guys knew about that. But there's this weird thing where, like, if you're near 100 miles of, like, the border, ICE agents have a lot of really weird powers. I didn't know that. It's yeah. almost like I did a lot of research when I picked Ice Agent. 
Yeah, you'd be surprised the kind of shit ice agents can get away with when you're within 100 miles of basically water. Oh, yeah, the the amount of, yeah, sure, you can do that, that you could have done in that operation with the credentials is through the roof and terrifying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you really actually, gave us... Oh, okay. God. I was going to say, I actually remember, I think I we brought it up briefly, like, you know, if we use these, we have basically almost unlimited power and no one can really question you on it. It's one of those, like, it's like the star in Mario. You're just literally invincible in a really scary way. Yeah, and we and we were just like, no. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need it. We're yeah. not that bad. We're better than this. Yeah. That's how, exactly how I saw it in the sense of just like, here, we're giving you the key of, like, unlimited power you're just going to be the the trade-off is that you're going to be understood as an ice agent and you're just going to have that like, social stain on you. and like as no <laughs> yeah, yeah no not. yeah every operation has a what i kind of call the mystery key where like once you figure out how it works the entire operation just kind of falls apart or unlocks around it and that one it's like just be an ice agent just use those powers use these forbidden powers alex touched on this but like the shit you could have gotten away with because of the location because of what you were investigating because of public perception because it's one of those agencies where people don't actually really know what they're supposed to be doing we think we know what they do and that's part of the problem like that's kind of, that's a big part of delta green it's why i like playing characters that have very obscure powers when that game works like yeah yeah why do i play so many irs agents do you know what an irs investigator's jurisdiction is no neither do most people and i'm going to abuse that constantly yeah no it's the mask is fun the mask is kind of meant to be a return to good old-fashioned delta we're going to find an artifact that's weird and dangerous like it's a low stakes operation that kind of like gets bad around you and i think that's the only one that technically can sort of self-solve or more can like flat out say yo here's what's going on because there's a chain of events that would unfold of like people getting murdered like the more days you were there there's gonna be more and more murders and eventually depending on kind of when certain things happened either victor was gonna murder christina or christina was gonna murder victor and that's pretty obvious what's going on uh, but now yeah. you found the house you found the apartment and dealt with the mask and that caused the whole breakdown but then there comes the house and I think you guys were giving me crap about this beforehand, rightfully so, where it's like you've trained us to believe the most dangerous thing in Delta Green is an unoccupied house, and that was fun. And, like, the Francis' house is one of the moments in the entire campaign that, like, I, you guys got to deal with this because of back-behind-the-scenes stuff, but, like, I was genuinely excited. Like, they are the things that I think of as the coolest, most insane me moments in the campaign where it's like, oh yeah, we're going to introduce these weird data tentacles. Like, there's no way you can know what's going to happen. Like, it's just me piling handler bullshit on top of handler bullshit of like, oh, your cell phone won't turn off now. Enjoying that weird Wi-Fi? You know, there's eyes everywhere. No one but you notices the house. Like, you go inside and there's dossiers about all of you and everything you've done in the campaign up till this point. And also there's just these tentacle cables everywhere that sure seem weird, but also I keep describing as, yeah, they're just cables. Yeah, that was a trip, you know, going in and meeting our adversary for the first time. That was, oh God, that was like 
really just kind of the Pandora's box opening up where I was like, oh God, what do we, like, what's happening? And I also thought I was going to experience another character death. I I think that actually, like, the only person who was not close to dying in that session was Javier, John. Yeah. Because that was, that was, yeah, that was the expedition dump, exposition dump, and the holy hell these blinking lights are gonna kill us and i think that firestarter and florence both failed their dodge checks to not get grabbed by the tentacles yeah yeah and that was like my that was that was my like guns blazing moment because i think i just hit a succession of solid rolls the whole yeah that whole sequence yeah because i actually think i had remembered it wrong initially i think you actually got florence out of her binds and firestarter it sounds it, rightish, yeah. That sounds about right because I remember I was hitting all my athletics checks for sure. Because yeah. you got us out, and then Florence ran to the window and rolled a critical unarm to get the window open for us. But otherwise, if you hadn't been there, I think we were we were done because it was another one of those strength checks with the big penalty. Yep, I think this that was after I had developed the explosive disorder, right? I think that came as part of that. You had paranoia by then. I maybe definitely had paranoia. Maybe you had explosive, but I don't, I don't remember the exact chain of events your disorders, I, but it, explosive didn't really become a big deal until we got to Philly, and that's kind of where it got, like, like not quite comical, but like, I'm going to grenade this house because the last house tried to kill us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the house was very short, but it was, like, super impactful. It was great. Yeah, it's designed to be that kind of thing. I think you spent about as much time kind of interacting with the outside of it, trying to figure out what the hell was going on with it, where it's like, on paper, it's just Francis's house. Like, how bad can it be? And then you go inside, and it's, didn't see this one coming. Yeah, and that's the whole point of it. Like, it's also, it's the end of the second-to-last operation type of thing. Like, That's when I had to start being a little more blatant about, like, yo, we're going to start talking about Milan. We're going to start talking about kind of, surveillance under theme of all of this we're going to get into the falling action if you will kind of this has to come to an end we can't play hawthorne's crusade forever this is kind of the gateway to what i call the kind of the being on the hunt for the big bad at that point kind of like you're going from hey we're being strung along to do these operations we have these kind of contained stories to okay something is hunting us we have to go on the offensive and hunt it now that we are a hundred percent sure something is actively hunting us and that kind of culminates in the end where we have all the home scenes play out, followed by the not home scene of, yeah, all of these roommates I threw at you all of a sudden that were encouraging you to make bonds with are working for the bad guy. They they are tentacle monsters. They're there to kill you type of thing. Tron shows up, blows up Florence's house and goes, oh, yeah, by the way, Pine's dead. And we're into the final kind of chapter of Hawthorne's Crusade, which is both kind of a dramatic departure of. Oh, yeah, I know. All this technology you've been relying on, all these kind of fun little gadgets, all this support, gone. Why? Because you can't trust it anymore. You get to have cars from the 80s and foot phones, maybe, type of thing. The restrictions on resources fucked me up so severely. (laughs) As it was supposed to. It's the part of being a good handler for this type of stuff is finding ways to change how players are basically kind of forcing adaptation, if that makes any sense. Like, it's as much about making interesting scenarios and operations and investigations as it is kind of dropping you into corners and going, we'll find your way out of this one now. Like, it's okay, cool. All your cell phones, all your internet, all that stuff you would rely on in every other operation you have used very effectively so far, 
dangerous now. How are you going to figure this one out? And you guys did a great job with that, I thought, too. Like, it's the, there's a learning curve to it, definitely. And you guys kind of, you stumbled a little bit, but at the same time, like, you're supposed to stumble. Like, I guess I'm going straight from diametrics to our final operation, Milan, which is cancer in French, for those curious. Yeah. I keep pronouncing it Malin, but it's pronounced Milan. It is cancer and or cancerous in French. The final kind of operation we did translates to cancerous reflection. I thought it was kind of a fun, because if they're the anti-Delta Green, they are the dark kind of festering, think they're right, doing the unnatural stuff, like, don't even realize they're toxic to the body overall thing. But like, oh no, they're doing their job, right? But yeah, that's all kind of high gluttony thinking at that point. But yeah, so then we have the bunker, which I think it's one of those things where it kind of like, we'll get into this more in our future seasons of Delta Green, but like, the spy craft, the like, okay, you have time to safely investigate is something I think that gets glossed over in Delta Green a lot. And I think kind of giving you a chance where you could safely kind of engage in that, hey, we're going to kind of take this laptop apart. Like we're going to kind of get into the forensic part of Delta Green, the kind of the, the real pulling apart the conspiracy stuff. It was fascinating to see how you guys played it out type of thing. We got the emergence of the rock. That's the safe cracking tool or the, hard drive cracking tool, which it could have done the entire time, FYI. Hey, that rock was very useful. Oh, yeah, no. I had more uses you just never figured out. You know, Florence initially hated that thing, but grew to care for it. It earned its mother's love. Yes. So the entire bunker is a little bit of a hint at what we'll be doing in our next season of Delta Green. Probably uh, Dylan has the most context for this that we've we made reference to it in the live streams. We'll make reference to it here. Now we've never referenced this part of the podcast though, because no place to. There is a what we refer to as the Vegas operation between me and him that is the origin story of a lot of the weird stuff that's kind of at the edges of this three part, this kind of three campaign story. I'm telling through negative modifier that will conclude with our third kind of long Delta Green campaign, if you will. It's coming up our T cell operation. J cell was the kind of introduction of, hey, this is Delta Green. We're going to kind of reintroduce some stuff to you. And also starting the podcast, this was, okay, we're getting back to this story that's been playing out behind the scenes in a little more major way. And T cell is the end of this ridiculous story that's actually kind of how I got into making negative modifier in some cases. It's a story I wanted to tell after another podcast fell apart that me and Dylan were on kind of thing. Like it's the story of events that happened and I have to go through the process on this, but I do have the recording of that and I may try and get that cleaned up for maybe the Patreon at least. It can't make it into the main channel because it's just not good audio, but if it's something people think is cool and curious about, it may or may not be out there for you by the end of our next Delta Green campaign. But yeah, so... What did you guys think of the bunker? We've kind of talked about the bunker a few times. I, I love the bunker. It's the bunker. The bunker was interesting because it was like this weird, like, side pause from like all the craziness, and we were just kind of forced to deal with ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> it was really interesting in that aspect. The ultimate home the, scene. Yeah, plus the weird dream sequences we had were great. I love and hate the bunker only because it's like I love the bunker because it really just forced us to just interact with just ourselves you said alec but at the same time i was just like oh man i don't know what to do mike i don't know how to contextualize firestarter with this florence this feels supernatural because florence was basically almost like 
all right, cool. This is your handler apprenticeship. But like Firestarter, Firestarter's defined himself as a field agent. Like he can't, he can't explain himself otherwise. I don't know. But at the same time, just like those little weird hallucination scenes and just us like losing sanity just by being forced to experience ourselves. Yeah. You're alone with only yourself. And that's in so many ways. Yeah. So then obviously we head off to Philly for the first kind of field work part of our final operation. We get our introduction to our brave detective who I'm not sure what I did that made you guys hate him so much, but like if one of you have died, he was going to be one of the replacement characters potentially. I didn't hate Eggsy. It was more not Eggsy. This wasn't Eggsy. This was the, maybe I leaned into it too hard, but like the fact that you guys like had this whole thought up backstory of why he hated DJ essence muncher so much. Like, the amount of just like overthink, I'm like, oh, this is so much better than what I came up with for this guy. This is great. Like, I think you, Jed, came with it. It's like, okay, he maybe like had a thing for his mom or something and is taking out like some weird past affair relationship on the kid. Like, the whole backstory you guys came up with for him, I'm like, this is great. Yeah. I mean, it was because he was obsessed with a teenager that most of we were just like, ah, you know, we don't really like this guy. This is a bad look. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out he's a very good friendly. You knew it was up. I'm yeah, the kid's home was kind of a a trip, you know, finding his parents there and just thinking about like the price you're willing to pay for that kind of power or the price that people are willing to pay for that kind of power. Yeah. I really appreciated like after the Philly op because it, it kind of became clear that the entity we were dealing with, William, we kept surprising him with coming out on top and he kept like saying that this was always part of the plan but it was kind of clear that we were slowly getting the upper hand on him yeah like, again it goes back to kind of the debunking of the hawthorne effect idea where it's like dude isn't as good as he thinks he is he thinks he's playing a game yogg is playing an actual game and like he has convinced himself he knows what's right and keeps going wrong for him why does it keep going wrong like what is it about you three that keep kind of messing up this great plan he came up with and it's because like part of like have a driving part of who william is is the fact that he is a kind of like an armchair soldier like he only has that nsa from a desk perspective on things he doesn't have that kind of when the boots hit the ground like when the plan starts to fall apart like he is just as planned shit why isn't the plan working yeah it's kind of like poetic in a way because when you think about it his obsession with f-cell was actually what what destroyed him in the end yeah no that was that was part of the story i was trying to tell is that kind of like it's this he gets so laser focused on f-cell like it becomes the target not like delta green it's like oh no if i stop f-cell then i stop delta green no you you don't and like if we'd had a tpk or kind of most of f-cell gone i had backup characters for them it's again it's gonna slot new agents in at that point it's the He's bad at this game. He thinks he's not, but like, yeah, it's like he's playing again. He has power beyond his imagination. He's using it the worst way possible, both in a literal and also just kind of a, you keep turning these houses into these nodes, and that's bad, I'm sure, spreading Yogg-Sothoth's power, but like, F-Cell keeps escaping them somehow. Weirdly enough, I would have absolutely lost my goddamn marbles if you had somehow slotted in Sentry Danny. <laughs> into a thing it's like oh f-cell's desperate here we go sentry danny everything you thought was true is actually true 
I mean, yeah, that was... I, so the list of backup characters was Florence's girlfriend, Century Danny, Eggs, and the detective in Philly. Like, they, those were all kind of the, like, okay, these can be people we can slot into F-Cell if need be type of thing. They've had the right exposure, and I did not expect Century Danny to become the beloved character by both you and the listeners that Century Danny became, like... The amount of like outpouring of this character that I'm like, I really hope I play this guy right because if I don't, he's gonna come off real badly, and I don't want him to. Like, I think he's the super cool, kind of amazingly tragic, interesting idea for a person kind of caught in the crossfire of the unnatural world of kind of the Call of Cthulhu mythos. And a, I'm super happy it's resonated with people the way it has, and like especially like your obsession with Century Danny specifically, Chad, was something I'm like. Shit, okay, this character landed cool. He was so sad. He was like like to think that the literally the only thing fulfilling him or like validating him was the worst possible path that he could choose. And the worst part is like Sentry Danny's crazy, but he's right. <laughs> he doesn't realize he's right. He's not right about everything, but like he's not wrong as much as you want him to be. Yeah, so Philly plays out, the rave happened, which I love the amount of effort that was put into the whole rave prep. I'm sitting there being like, okay, cool. Yeah, like, not, like going back to the Hawthorns, kind of the effect aspect of it, rave didn't matter at all. I'm like, the rave is cool. This is way more effort put in than it needs to be, but also let's play through this rave. Let's play through how ridiculous this rave winds up being. Like, can the graffiti watch you? Maybe, but is that Malin watching you? No. Yeah, it was fun. The whole setup for that was really good because even if it didn't matter, it felt like, you know, some genuine spy craft. Yeah, no, it's... It was so I didn't want to discourage it. I think I, think I wound up adding some kind of interesting flavor to it because we, we joke about behind the scenes, but like Delta Green, when you take a step back and look at the events that we played through, it's a weird, hilarious game. Dark! But it has just kind of this weird, warped sense of humor to it where it's like, Okay, we're assaulting a eldritch horror DJ's lair in raver gear because we staged a rave as cover a block away because we're pretty sure the graffiti is watching us. <laughs> my, one of, my guy was fighting eldritch horror Daisy Dukes, man. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Kevlar Daisy Dukes or whatever. Cause, right? Because they were like Kevlar, right? Yeah, they were t they were tactical Daisy Dukes. Yeah, that, <laughs> that I, I I literally factored in a, a negative one to the maximum amount of armor that I had, which almost killed me. Yeah, <laughs> <Had> um, <laughs> choices are made, but yeah, it's like it, it goes back to like the Florence on the date with Jimmy is inherently funny. In the moment, it's super dark, but like woman who's bad at flirting with man who is equally bad at flirting is a fun, silly sequence that belongs in way too many rom-coms. So through the Delta Greenlands, you're like, God, hope no one dies through this. <laughs> this could go bad real bad, couldn't it? Yeah, like the, the whole just image of F-Cell staging a rave to storm, like every part of the DJ Essence Muncher thing is both like designed to be this over-the-top, like this is ridiculous, but also if this was real, if this guy really was putting music out there that made your organs melt, like, that is inherently a ridiculous idea, but simultaneously it's like, we've already had the blinking diodes that make your organs shut down. What else is possible with this weird sequence? Like, 
the, the possibilities are both horrifying and kind of fascinating simultaneously, which I think then also leads into kind of Florence's slow descent towards wizardhood. You know, I mean, she was basically on the doorstep of being a wizard by the end of that. Yeah. No, indeed. I was curious to what Florence, if she had made it out of the Orbiter building, like what that home scene would have been, because she is at that point, like, yeah, it, she knows way too much, not in a like Delta Green way, but in a unnatural way to not do something stupid. So you want to know what, like, because Florence was not never going to go back home. I had decided that she was never going to, she would have said goodbye to her bond, but never, never would have come back after that. Sure. And I was going to have her life's work be trying to figure out how to convert the elder sign into like blinking lights or radio waves or something to further weaponize it. That was going to be her like thing in the end that probably would have been her downfall. That's so cool because that's basically Milan 2.0 at that point. That's yeah. better Milan, yeah. Exactly. She was going to, like, take the idea of everything she had seen and figure out how to apply it, but to fuck the unnatural in the process. Yeah, because that'll go over. That'll, that'll work great. Yeah, it wouldn't go... Like, I know that it wouldn't work, but, you know, Florence no, is like... No, yeah, it's, that's, a su that's a super cool idea for a character ending. I like that one a lot, but... Yeah, I mean, one of her last motivations is just saving people as a whole, which is why she has that very, like, greater good mindset, I'll sacrifice the few for the many. Yeah. And, I mean, I also really just kind of like the idea of trying to, to turn the Elder Sign into radio waves and shit. Yeah. The Philly thing is so interesting for me because it sets up kind of the mechanics of the rest of the campaign. Like, I think it's a hint at, like, whatever the final encounter for this is, it's going to be kind of, it's going to end in a chase sequence. It's going to be this kind of invisibility thing you have to solve. You can't rely on technology. You have to be stealthy type of thing. You have all of these good weapons to use and nothing to shoot for the majority of it. And still, it's like, okay, yeah, you kill the DJ Essence Muncher. Run? Yeah, run. Like, it's like, okay, cool. That's another time when I thought that two of us were going to die. Me too. Once again, the dice played out, and then we found ourselves in the technology quarter, which, that's a weird one. That was a weird one for me to research, too. Like, that's a kind of location falling into place where, once I found out there was a failed East Coast Silicon Tech Valley type of thing, it's like, oh, that's obviously where this takes place, and that was kind of eldritch horror shaping the orbit of stuff, and... Yeah, that was like kind of again, kind of return to like, okay. You guys have to take this slow. You have to investigate. Like it's you know where you're trying to get to. You just don't know where you're trying to get to. If that makes any sense. Like yeah, let's explain some stuff. Like let's have David Oritz at the end explain kind of the as he understands its history of Orbita and the FNC and kind of what happened. And it's not wrong. It's just incomplete. But it's also enough that like you as the players can understand. Okay here's what we're kind of walking into, give or take. So, Charlie, I was thinking about that plug that Florence got at the very end. Yep. And I was actually, like, one of the solutions I had thought of was just jamming that into the the server racks. Would that have done anything? Nah. So, kind of going back to your question about what was happening with the whole blinking light thing, the fact the plug didn't take place is because you didn't understand what the Oxithoff was saying to you, essentially. Like, that was... 
an after effect of Yogg-Sothoth attempting to plug you in, for lack of a better phrase, to the network, if you will. Like, he was trying I to make see. you into a node. Think of it as, like, that division of Yogg-Sothoth figured out that he's basically the internet in eldritch form. So, yeah, he'll reach out through these cables that William has so wonderfully provided for him. And, yeah, he was just trying to, yeah, he was trying to... He, Maybe not into kind of like a DJ Essen Munchers or his parents type of situation, but kind of on that same cable creature as DJ Essence Muncher, essentially kind of making you into a node C. You would have technically survived it and gotten some weird cable tentacle person powers out of it, but that's a separate topic. Wait, what? You, no, no, go on. Her unnatural would have gone through the goddamn roof because she'd have been tapped into Yogg-Sothoth intellect essentially okay but like you said powers what what, yeah. what kind of powers are you talking here basically any ritual dylan wanted to try he'd, be, he'd know how to do all of a sudden really yeah. that's kind of fucking cool god okay so another ending like thought process i had for florence was her learning the ritual where you just transcend your consciousness to another plane basically and that was one of the other ideas i had for florence's like ending if she survives yeah, for a home see if you'd communed with the rock, the rock could have started giving you rituals. The rock healed you at one point because it's looking out for you. Again, going back to this kind of idea that Florence finds herself kind of torn between three eldritch entities because she is oddly receptive and or already linked to them. It opened up a door to do a bunch of stuff you don't get to do in Delta Green, where it's like, no, like it. it you can do the rituals now. Why? A, your unnatural is so goddamn high, you know stuff, but also, like, your sanity is low, but not, like, dangerously low, so you can pull this stuff off, and, yeah, if, if the cable had taken root, it would have given her access to any ritual she wanted to attempt type of thing, because, again, it's, where did, Flo kind of, it becomes the question of where does Florence end and Yogg-Sothoth begin at that point? Again, I should basically fall for the trap William fell into, which is like, oh, I'm getting all this knowledge, and the knowledge is turning you into a brain in a jar attached to a server. Speaking of brain in a jar attached to a server, I gotta ask, what was the, the orb in the orbit of Bill? So that is one of the things you could have found out if you had dug into the history of Orbita. So that orb is how Yogg-Sothoth essentially got going in all of this. It was a possession of the CEO of Orbita he'd had since he was a kid. He got given it as a gift because he was into cool rocks, and ever since then, Yogg-Sothoth has been kind of whispering to him how to do a bunch of this stuff. Like, if you dug into the history of Orbita, you'd have found that Orbita kept having success where it shouldn't have. It kept having kind of big breakthroughs in technology that were like, yeah, we went from like cassette tapes to microchips with nothing in between technology jumps. Like this shouldn't be happening. This isn't how technology works. It was because Yogg-Sothoth was kind of whispering to the sky through the orb information. The orb is also a chunk of star metal, essentially, or space metal that Yogg-Sothoth threw at the Earth to find a person to whisper to. So. Mm. Touching it would have given us a redux of Yogg-Sothoth blinking lights in the kind of cosmic whatever at that point. It's the same chance that you get to talk to Yogg-Sothoth because you are communing with essentially an idol to Yogg-Sothoth. It grows because Yogg-Sothoth doesn't want to feel capable of being destroyed. And yeah, it is capable of eating a human. Like if you touch it, if you don't successfully kind of bond with Yogg-Sothoth, it pulls you in just because it's like, okay, you're useless. 
Oh, so like Firestarter would have absolutely not even second thought would have just been sucked in because he's just like, you're you dumb idiot. No, you're not going to be part of my. <laughs> so kind of from a mechanic standpoint, it's not an instantaneous being pulled into it. You could have chopped your arm off to escape it if they got to it fast enough. Huh. So when we were going into this like final showdown, guys, I'm curious, like what was going through every character's head? We had Firestarter write his letter and John wrote his letter as well. But I'm curious, like, when you guys were making the decisions as to, like, what to say and what to do, was there anything that was going on in their heads that we didn't hear about? Honestly, with mine, I felt like maybe that was probably the most, like, social, like, emotion-esque interaction, I guess, that I would have had at the end. And it's just very much a, hey, you know, it's been an honor to, to work with you. And that's it. Like... It's kind of a, hey, thank you kind of thing. But yeah, I don't, it's weird because I, I feel like my character, I mean, obviously my character wouldn't have been super sentimental in that sense, but I think it's one of those things where your character just kind of, or at least from my experience based all around my character, every operation was potentially an operation you were going to die and not come back. So if that was the case, you just kind of let them know, hey, you know, it was, it was an honor. Probably wouldn't have done it to his other co-workers in the CIA, if you will. But given the bonds that he had formed with Florence and Firestarter, that was his way of showing, hey, like, thank you. So I guess that's at least that's my motivation for my character. Sure. With what's it called? Firestarter. Firestarter was kind of considering this to be a suicide mission just because like, I was still playing with the idea of him trying to compare himself to this. So in essence, he probably would have prioritized everyone's lives over his own. If he wasn't tied down or whatever the heck, he would probably attempted to throw himself into the pit and try to push you out or something or try to push Florence out or something like that. And in this weird sort of sense, I kind of took the ending that Firestarter had as a means of kind of revitalizing himself or just kind of giving himself a new purpose just because his failures are kind of what he obsessed over. And now it's like, well, he's literally got nothing else, so... This is all he really has, which is why he answered back so quickly. You're kind of playing into an idea I brought up as kind of part of William's final, what's the reference, his whole speech where it's like, you aren't people anymore, you're Delta Green agents. Like, I think kind of one of the themes you guys started making for yourself is the whole idea that, like, Delta Green has this whole spiral we talk about as, like, the degradation of agents to becoming just agents type of thing. But, like, Firestarter especially is this epitome where, like, so, so much of his real life is just given up for Delta Green. Like, uh, where that character starts from kind of a mechanic standpoint, he has a bunch of bonds, he has friends, he has this kind of whole hero thing through his actual job, and where he ends is it's like, no, nah, you're gonna die a Delta Green agent. Why? Because this is an addiction. Like, you, you've given into this thing as more than just, like, this thing you're doing. It's like, it's who you are type of thing. Like, you've made Delta Green agent your personality, whether you realize it or not. Oh, absolutely. Funny enough, when you say it started off with a whole bunch of bonds, I just kept collecting bonds and I didn't want to give those up because I don't think Firestarter really wanted to try to break those. There were a couple times where he was like blaming other people and stuff and actually did yeah. break some bonds and whatever have you. But ultimately, he still wanted to be kind of understood as appreciated or something like that. So if Delta Green is the only people that'll appreciate what he can do, then Delta Green is where it's at. I enjoy the mystery kind of the character of like it's a weird like self dysmorphia where it's it's how he views himself. Like he probably could go back to being a very successful fireman, but like 
he doesn't think he can. He has to be a Delta Green agent. Like it kind of feeds into this like addictive personality you made up for the character too, where it's like it's like yeah, it's it's kind of the, the job is a problem because it's so consuming. You kind of asked the question of the other two. Let's turn it back on you now, Dylan. Any other kind of additional thoughts of Florence going into the final thing? We've touched on a bunch of stuff throughout all of this, obviously, but Okay. So Florence, you know, wrote her letters and everything and then just went back to to doing her her old job, which is, you know, she's a microbiologist. She had I, I don't think it really I think it came up once. She has a ninety in microbiology and Florence, the way that I built her, she has tens in her skill, like in her attributes across the board, except in Dex, she has an eight. And then in intelligence, she has a 17. And in POW, she has a 17. So she's actually like a genius and pretty determined. And I was thinking like at the very end there, she was reminiscing on how she thought she was going to do a lot with her job and her career and everything because everybody at least academically has always been encouraging her and telling her that you know she's going to be one of these like big breakthroughs for virology or epidemiology and whatnot so she was just sitting there thinking about what could have been and where she is now that kind of you're gonna go far kid type of thing i mean yeah like i mean She's a little narcissistic, so, like, she knows that she's a genius. She's, like, got that high intellect and everything, and with her 17 POW, the way I kind of take that, because it runs off of willpower, too, is she would stay up, like, for multiple days on end when she was in university, and she would do her work, and she spent, you know, hours on hours working on her dissertation and her defense and all that stuff, and then Delta Green came along, and, I mean... I think she's probably one of the younger, youngest Delta yeah. Green agents I've we ever seen. We touched played. on it a couple of times, I think. And, like, that wasn't just a random age Dylan put out of a hat. Like, there is some kind of character implications about who Florence is, about her being 28 at the start of the operation, yeah. So, you know, she's young and she's fresher. She's, like, with a 90 in microbiology, she was one of the top in her field already, and she was just remembering how how she was sure that she was going to help cure or eradicate some disease or something but now she's here and this is her life now and she's not sure if she's doing more here than she would have working for the cdc yeah it's interesting so there's a lot of implied stuff about florence that you don't have to talk about much in the campaign until we get to kind of this our very special lore dive episode where there, there are some very intentional deliberate choices unless you understand delta green as a system you don't pick up on initially like i one of the questions i think i mentioned in some video or if not in some videos in one of the in an episode or in a live stream where florence is built to withstand sand damage it's because she has a friggin' 17 in pow that's not a normal character build by any measure no i again she has a 10 strength an 8 dex a 10 con teen intelligence 17 pow and a 10 charisma she's strictly average across the board except when it comes to her mental ability yeah no and i think it's a fascinating build for a character in delta green where so many people build these kind of swat equivalent fbi agents or whatever where it's like no no this is the power of a character that can just eat sand damage it has a place there's definitely a kind of way of making that character that makes it unbelievably powerful so yeah that that kind of brings us to the end of this. You all know how Malin ended. Florence got pulled through time, Foxtrot, and 
Firestarter made it out, but just barely. I'm always trying to kill you guys a little bit because Delta Green, but like, I was so excited when you guys managed to pull off that driving out, like a critical as part of that. Just that was a cool feeling moment of like, oh God, oh God, oh God, floor it. It felt so weirdly empty for me because it's like, okay, cool, we got out, but like Florence though. Absolutely. Yeah, it cuts both ways. Like it's you survive, but at what cost? But also from a end of a kind of ridiculous house like a a building is literally caving in and getting dragged out of time, out of the dimension around you from a kind of like you survive that standpoint, it's cool, but also like it again goes back to the but what does it matter? Florence is still dead type of thing, or Florence is gone. Yeah, it was very much a bittersweet drive away. Like, yeah, we got out, it's great, but yeah, like, it was, it, it had the similar vibe to, like, when Florence and Foxtrot got out of the house. Yeah. And Faustus did make it. Yeah, they like, created a cost. Yeah. Like, I think, actually, both of our characters were pretty somber when we got out. Like, it was, yep. like, we got, like, yeah. Yes. It was very just kind of somber. I don't think we even talked about it either. Like, we just, as soon as we got far enough out, we were just like, you okay to drive? And we traded spots, and then we just kept driving. Like, Yeah. I know, the energy of the sequence is high. The characters themselves are, like, unbelievably low. Like, the lowest point of the campaign for the characters is a fascinating kind of juxtaposition where... For most other games, you'd be like, hell yeah, we did it. And in this game, you're just like, yeah, I guess we did it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's some peak kind of, this is what makes Delta Green cool. Because, yeah, it's it's a frantic, crazy sequence that led to that. And the characters themselves, and you guys, again, played it fantastically of just like, you survived. Whoopee. Yeah. So one thing I I haven't really realized until we started talking about the end here, but you know, in the end times, it seems like, you know, you don't need to breathe anymore. And I guess probably don't die where Florence went. And the last like thing she has that connects her to her old life is that note that John slipped into her gear when she was not looking. And I think that that's somewhat comforting, but very sad at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Cause I snuck those notes on you guys. Yep. So that is the last like last connection she has to the past and the team and that is gonna be what she focuses on for the rest of eternity is as, how as literally existence ends around her the last human thing she has is a note yep. yeah and, and and what's great too is like the note's very simple it's not like super long it doesn't have anything over the top it's just a very direct hey it was an honor like that's also just kind of interesting too. Like that, that it's such a little like droplet of humanity too. Like it's, it's really interesting. And now that you put it like that and bring yeah. it up. I don't know like what it is because Naira let the pep put her somewhere where he knew she'd be safe. So she didn't, he didn't have to worry about the deal anymore. And I mean, knowing Florence, even if it breaks her mind, like that is what she's going to focus on for the rest of her time. Is Can I ever get back? to to my team because in the end they're the ones who matter now and this note is the only thing that's keeping me going so and i guess like major spoilers i guess i know we're already under a giant spoiler warning for this but like if you want some spoilers thank you for listening hope you enjoyed the campaign more delta in the future but i guess for you guys that's the end of time 
Like that, that where Nyarlath pulled Florence to is where Nyarlath Ratef kind of throws up its hands and goes, okay, where can I put you where you're safe from everything? Oh, I'll put you where the place in time is where there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting spot. I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> yeah, nor was I. That gave me such an existential crisis of just like, oh, what kind of weird hell is this where everything has ceased to exist except you, the person that you hate, and your weird rock child. And Azathoth is slowly coming through the sky. Yeah, it is literally the end. The end of what? No, it's, it's just capital T, capital E, the end. The end of the dream. It's the end of everything maybe kind of like yeah and as part of that whole sequence you have Nyarlathotep look at Florence and go and you know who's responsible for this it's it's our boy Nyarlathotep yep it's our boy Nyarlathotep and some other hints that are spoilers for next season so we won't get into them right now but I think that's almost everything we could possibly say about Hawthorne's Crusade like this went on far longer than i thought it was going to it's i it it i probably had a lot to say after this like i yes it was a year of our life we played this so i'm not surprised we had a lot of stuff to talk through i i guess i've been keeping with negative modifier delta green campaign tradition after we finished up like there was just a solid like five ten minutes of sons of us all being like oh yeah (laughs) it was really good it was like not a relief because it was bad, but a relief because, you know, we finally got there to the end. Yeah. And it was sad, but it was it was good. No, I I talk about kind of how post campaign depression is a thing and as someone who has lived with Hawthorne's Crusade in their brain, like all the weird inner workings of it and the extra plots and all the kind of weird ways that can go. We got done playing really late at night and I just kind of sat on my couch for like two hours afterwards just feeling that thing finally kind of like ooze out of my skull like i could finally let it go and just like it's like it's like i'm free time to start thinking up the next thing for this and yeah I, I, literally I, I had my own nylethrotep moment of like i'm free it's like no you're not you got one more campaign of this to figure out and it's like i already started on that but yeah it's i it's really nice to hear that the campaign live with you guys as much as it did do it makes me feel really happy with how it all turned out like it's yeah, based on listenership and just some of the feedback we've gotten, people seem to have really enjoyed our time with Hawthorne's Crusade, and that's been fantastic, too. It's, yeah, no, I, from a kind of a personal handler, GM kind of perspective, you always worry that long campaigns like this won't land the way you want them to, and you'll be unhappy with how it turned out. And I can now successfully say I have two fairly long-running Delta Green campaigns in recorded format that I would not change a single thing about them. They're great. Thank you all for playing so well through it. I would like to add that, like, I mean, our characters did really well because you created such a a wonderful environment for them to thrive in. Like, I hear horror stories about, like, you know, game masters or DMs, whatever you want to call it, like, who purposely do really shitty things to their players just to fuck with them kind of thing. But, like, you never once had any kind of inclination towards that. Like, it was always a very, very good experience. Like, even though we were in, like, tight spots, like, you created a wonderful environment and story for our characters to thrive in. So, like, I mean, it's 
Thanks. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. You did an awesome job. Like a year of ongoing there. psychological torture via Delta Green. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say you are one of the few GMs that I could trust to like for me to kind of bring up these the kind of like com- not complicated but a little yeah I was you know what say, let's say complicated complicated characters and it's like really just want to explore these things and like treat it respectfully treat the stories respectfully and just like actually put care into like crafting a story and not just taking an easy way out for a cheap pop like to use wrestling vernacular but no yeah I so thank uh, you thank you no, and for all the listeners that have kind of written in and sent us messages on Twitter and stuff like that, yeah, your trust in us where I've kind of responded a couple of times with, like, give it a couple episodes or, like, this all plays out in a way that, like, this is not us just doing something for the sake of shock kind of thing. Like, thank you for trusting us with that. We, I know I slap a warning at the start of all these episodes about these might be way too goddamn dark, but I'd also like to think that you, our listeners, trust that we're not just doing it for shock value. We are doing it to kind of weave the most interesting story in a incredibly dark and fucked up game that we unironically love. Like, it is one of my favorite games. I think I've turned... Dylan also came into this being a big Delta Green fan. I think I've successfully turned Jad and Alex into huge Delta Green fans. Not that it was really all that hard. It's a great game. Yeah, no, it's a great game. <laughs> yeah, I... I had I don't know I had something to say and I lost it but yeah this was a great campaign and one of the things that I really appreciate about our group we we did some really dark stuff and covered a lot of really dark topics I've been in groups where you know people just kind of make light of all of that and I'm glad that all of us were able to acknowledge that like you know this was not good we're not the heroes in this situation kind of cathartic to have i guess a less a group that's not like the norm where everybody's just going for shock value and a laugh at other people's expense again thank you for listening we have more delta green in the eventual future i have no good way of signing this off do either of you any of you have a good one i could talk about this campaign forever but i need to be stopped i would say like thank you for all the listeners and we look forward to you know putting together another wonderful experience with you guys in the next campaign Absolutely, yeah. We, yeah. I guess to kind of get podcasty for a second, we're taking a little bit of a break from Delta Green. We have some other stuff coming up that we suspect if you've enjoyed how we play games and the games we play, you'll enjoy. They're going to be a pretty major kind of setting departure. We've got some cool stuff planned, and if you're just here for the Delta Green, don't worry. We got plenty more Delta Green planned. It's not going anywhere. We're just taking a little break so I don't have to live with conspiracy theories in my brain for another year. <laughs> yeah if you've enjoyed the campaign if you enjoy the show if you enjoy us as people uh, twitter email those various links out there let us know we love hearing from you it makes it all worth this type of thing also tell your friends tell your enemies tell people you think might enjoy our dark tales of woe and whatnot but uh, yeah again thank you for listening thank you everybody yeah, thank you <laughs>